Hey, Ira, you're illustrating a book, right? Uh, I'm excited for you to watch this movie because I think you might get some cool ideas out of it. Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm just wrapping up the sketching, so I'm kind of getting out my new materials for doing the inking and color and all that. Speaking of materials, yeah. you know what I always thought your comic could use a little bit more of? Gold leaf. Oh, well, I was using a digital tablet, so I guess I can, you know, maybe I can just kind of pour it on after they print it out. I, I guess that could look fine. Oh, and you know what else would be cool? Yeah. Uh, a bejeweled cover. I'm thinking we get some rubies on there. I'm thinking we get some emeralds. Okay, they were Maybe gonna... some sapphires. How are you feeling? Not really sure if that was in the budget with the publisher. I think they were going to do like a spot gloss or something, uh -huh, but I, uh -huh. I can ask about the jewels. Yeah, and I hate to interrupt. Yeah. Most important thing, we have only about one day before the Northmen get here to murder us all, so if you could kind of just oh. wrap this all up in gold... And so we can hit the road. Yeah, but I think the wall, the walls should hold. Mm, I mean, I don't know about that. And uh, time's okay. running fast, so let's go. All right, let me let me just wrap it wrap it up here. Let me run the spell check. Okay, while you're handling and... that, I'll just hi. I'm Kaylin Kadju, an animator and illustrator. Oh yeah, hey, and I'm Ira Marks. I write and I draw comics. Sometimes they have gems on the cover. They really should have gems on the cover. This is a podcast about cartoons where two lifelong artists and fans talk about the mysterious and magical process of bringing good cartoon stories to life. In today's episode, we're kicking off our series about the Irish Animation Studio Cartoon Saloon. Grab your quill and parchment and please join us as we illuminate their first film, Secret of Kells. Welcome to Cartoon Feelings. Welcome to Ireland. <laughs> we made it. Yeah, that was a long swim. It's good to get out. It's good to get out. It's good to see the green, the Emerald Isles. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is green season on Cartoon Feelings, I think, for the next four weeks, right? That's true. Yes. You want to uh, tell people what we're up to in case they don't know? Uh, in case you don't know, uh, and you didn't listen to the end of our last episode, which was... Uh, Kind of rude. Uh, we are talking about Cartoon Saloon, the Irish studio. Uh, for the next four, four weeks, we are doing a different Cartoon Saloon movie every week. Uh, leading up to their latest release, which is hot off the presses, Wolf Walkers, which I'm very excited to get to at the end of this month. Right. So we're starting off with Secret of Kells, then off into Song of the Sea and True. the breadwinner after that. Exciting times. I am pumped. I'm ready. I don't know why we didn't do this earlier. I just we well, this is only thinking. like episode eight, so there's not a whole lot of early. <laughs> I don't know why this isn't a cartoon <laughs> saloon podcast. <laughs> well, I think it's about to be. We were just talking off air a little bit about how we are heavily invested in this studio all of a sudden, and I'm I'm pretty new to it. I I haven't been following their work. This is all uh, pretty fresh to me, but I'm I'm in. I'm all in. Ugh, I love it. Yeah, and uh. I feel the same way, and I saw this movie, so it's 2009, I believe. I think it came out in America in maybe 2010, so somewhere around that. Uh, Secret of Kells, I saw it maybe a few years after the fact. I believe it had a limited release initially, 
to kind of get it in award season. And then it did go wide at some point. What's interesting to me is that they've gotten a little bit more mainstream. Yeah. If you can say that with every release, I feel. Well, I, I'll be honest here. I I think I wasn't into the studio because I remember seeing the trailer for Secret of Kells. I'm like, that looks boring. And that was pretty much it. So, you know, I'm ashamed now and I'm not ashamed to say now that I, I wish I had been more on board early on. But I will admit on first watch, Secret of Kells is... Uh, it's a little hard to emotionally invest in since this is, this is the feelings podcast. When you first proposed this idea, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a good conversation of a movie I don't get emotional about, which still remains kind of true. But I am uh, emotionally invested on a lot of the other side of things, like the aesthetic side, as opposed to the character side. Yeah. And I'm excited for our conversation about all of this stuff. I do want to say now we've started kind of talking more and more about storytelling stuff as the podcast has gone on, which I'm really excited about. And we've had really good conversations about it already. But this one I'm excited for us to talk about because it feels challenging. It feels like a weird uh, movie in terms of storytelling. Up until now, we've been very like, you know, plot driven, like motivations, like da 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 da. And I feel like Cartoon Saloon kind of doesn't always rigidly adhere to those things. And especially this one in good and bad ways, possibly. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious to see what we can kind of make of that. Yeah, we're going to make a lot out of out of this conversation about storytelling, because it's just the things we're going to say will naturally, I feel, be very different than what we say about, for example, Incredibles or Incredibles 2. There's, this asks you to look at cartoon storytelling in a very different way. And I'm excited to do this chronologically and also have not seen, you know, I haven't seen a bunch of these movies yet. And watching them grow in a way that I feel like probably, like you were saying, they're a little more accessible. And I think that's because their style has adapted to be maybe a bit more soaking up some of like the Disney vibe a little bit in the way they um, they just use visuals. But Secret of Kells is very authentic to like uh, a very different style of, of cartoon narrative. Yeah, let's unpack that. But first... We have to do some of the most important stuff, like such as talking about its Rotten Tomatoes score, which was 90%. I don't want to break the chain. <laughs> it's good to have numbers on a show. Just the one. We don't so look 90, at any other metrics. <laughs> 90%, that's, that's what you get when people are kind of, they like more what you're doing instead of what you actually made. It's not like any of these characters show up on t-shirts. <laughs> Right? <laughs> yeah. Which it's is more another... like an appreciation for the art, that 90%. Yeah. I guess so. I don't know who he's... In. You know, this is a meaningless number. We're just kind of including it at this point, I feel like, for the sake of a running gag. Because I don't know, like, how many how many reviews is this taking into account? Who were the critics? I don't know. Couldn't tell you. Didn't look at it. 90%, though. Well, on the another meaningless fact, uh, because clearly we love facts so much, we just... <laughs> Shame them as as we bring them up. Nominated for Best Animated Feature at the 2010 Academy Awards. Another a meaningless statistic. So did they just want to bring these guys in because they were doing something different? Did they actually like it? Who knows? Beats me. Couldn't tell you. It's barely feature length even, right? Isn't it like 78 minutes or something? Um, It's an hour and nine minutes. Okay. 
Do we want to talk about the studio first, then we'll hop back to like the summary of the movie? Okay. So this is kind of our inception of this four-week cartoon saloon-a-thon or whatever we're going to call it. Maybe nothing. I don't know. Uh, Up too late. Saloon-a-thon. <laughs> it's cartoon saloon-a-thon. Uh, I want to talk a little bit, if we may, about the studio. And both you and I, I think have run into not knowing that much about Cartoon Saloon. So I have been keeping up with their movies over the years, like more or less. I actually still haven't seen The Breadwinner yet, uh, but I'm excited to watch that shortly. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I've seen Song of the Sea and I saw Wolf Walkers a couple of times at this point already. But I still don't know that much about the studio. And it's contrasting that with our previous conversations. There's so much like quote unquote rich history of like the Disney studio and Pixar. They have all this mythology about them. And I've read, you know, full length books about the history of those studios. I don't have that for Cartoon Saloon. You know, they obviously haven't been around as long either. There's just not that much of that type of information about them, which honestly makes them even more appealing to me as a studio to not have this like, I don't know, um, personality cult kind of energy to them. Yeah, they have a very, uh, to me, they they feel more like a, because they started in 09, you can kind of throw this word around, like they feel like kind of a hipster band to me. They're very of a region. You know, they're still based out of... Kilkenny, which apparently is a city, not a town. I actually read that in an interview about Wolfwalkers where they it's like the population is really low, but technically it's a city, so we have to call it a city. Which might be mostly made up of the employees of Cartoon Saloon at this point. Very possible. I, th- I think they're up to around 300 or so people, which is pretty sizable. Yeah. But it's it's still, you know, the people that began it are still the people in charge of it, right? You got Tom Moore. So, well, let me stop you here really quickly because one thing I wanted to say, I mean, Secret of Kells came out in 2009, but Cartoon Saloon actually started in 1999. But that is when the base idea of Secret of Kells was crafted. Uh, and then production just didn't happen until I think like 2005 or something. And then it, you know, became a movie. Okay. Uh, which is interesting. But Cartoon Saloon was started by Tom Moore, Nora Toomey, I think is her how you pronounce her last name. I don't actually know. And I'm sorry if you do know, please correct me. That would be awesome. And Paul Young, who I don't know, uh, but he is the CEO of Cartoon Saloon. The, it, it makes sense that this idea has been kind of ruminating with them because it I don't know what it is about this movie, but it feels like an art school project because it's it's trying to teach you something more than it's trying to entertain, if that makes sense. Like it's very invested in being uh, doing a lot of like reference to different types and styles and different eras of art more than it is trying to like create uh, an iconic character to live forever in our imaginations. It's like they have they have something they want to say about their culture and where where they're from. Uh, so it f- feels very artsy. Yes, I, I love that you said art school project because I didn't really think about it in that way, but you're totally right. And apparently the idea for Secret of Kells did come about when Tom Moore et al. were in college and finishing up their university program. Uh, but I was thinking that when I was rewatching it because I, I had forgotten, I think, how many kind of experimental segments there are in this movie where it's just like, yeah. by the way, this style is happening now. Or they're, you know, they're running through the pages of an illuminated manuscript. Or there's this really amazing sequence that hopefully we'll talk 
uh, about at length a little bit later uh, when he's fighting this like giant sea worm underground thing, Krom, Kruak, and like the giant, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe it. We'll get into it later, but just what they're doing in these moments, they're a total break from the overall, you know, design and aesthetic and layout of the rest of the movie is so cool. And it does, it totally feels like we're just like experimenting. We're seeing how we can push this and like what this comes out as. And I think that's something that I like about this movie so much is it has that and it doesn't feel as commercial. No. And I think Cartoon Saloon doesn't feel as commercial in the way where we're more and more aware every year that Pixar is engineering these movies for us. Right. <laughs> for better or for worse. Yeah, totally. Well, they're, you know, they kind of grew up as a studio earning their their way to this project, you know, whereas like something like Pixar, they're able to just experiment and indulge one project. But Cartoon Saloon, I assume, you know, if you look at their site and their output during like that that first 10 years or so, it's a lot of commercial work or like kind of music video or experimental shorts and stuff like that. So it's like they're definitely building a reputation for themselves before they're able to put together this original passion project and turn it into, you know, a full length feature and present it in a theater instead of just, you know, dumping it on whatever, you know, young YouTube era. And also another thing, because, you know, we talk about software a little bit, but there's something about this movie and the fact that it came out in 09 and the resources that were available to us, like it was After Effects still like macromedia at that point, it, it was a pretty new flashy program. And a lot of this feels like, oh, now we have After Effects and we can just shift images around a lot easier, which saves like time and cell animating. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on just sort of like the production of the studio's work at this time? I have more questions than I have answers about it. I was reading an article and some of this is all just like running together in my mind. And I'm pretty sure it was a Wolf Walkers article. So hopefully... By the time we get to that episode, I'll have, like, figured out which one it was exactly. Uh, But it was Tom Moore talking about the appeal of 2D, I think, and still using these, like, traditional techniques. And the way that he was talking really made me feel like they – the emphasis was not on these digital production techniques. I actually – I feel like I might have put this – yeah, this was a great quote um, from director Tom Moore. It says – Computer animation is moving so fast that Toy Story looks really ropey now, he said, which is true. (laughs) Whereas there are hand-drawn films from the 1940s that still stand up, Bambi still looks really timeless, and that's because its language is the language of painting and illustration rather than the language of the latest technology, which I thought was so interesting, and it makes so much sense in terms of what they've done. And uh, when I watch these movies, I always think like these were made on a computer. Like I'm, I'm thinking that, but they do. I do think like these movies generally will age better than a lot of 3D stuff for the same reasons. Because I've thought that when I go back and watch Bambi specifically or Snow White or any of those things, it's really wild to me how it doesn't look like you don't look at it and be like, dang, like the rendering, you know, I can see all the pixels on whatever. Like you don't. It certainly looks dated because of its design choices. But in terms of just sheer aesthetic quality, it does not look dated. And so I I hear what he's saying. Um, all of this to say, I don't know what they're using to make these movies, actually. Like I don't know anything about their uh, real concrete process and pipeline or software. I have no idea. But I do think 
that their overall sensibility kind of like leaning into that uh, illustrative aesthetic and trying to make it feel more timeless does them a lot of credit. I don't know. I don't know if After Effects comes into this at all. But I also, there are segments, especially in Secret of Kells, that look a little bit dated to me now. Mm-hmm. So there is that. And uh, like if you if you look at all their movies as we'll go through this whole series, getting up to Wolfwalkers, it's really wild. The visual progression they've also made as a studio in the meantime, knowing that this whole like kind of ethos of, you know, using painting and illustration is their kind of North Star. That's just very interesting. So I guess I'll just say... The, the thing about Cartoon Saloon, you know, knowing that we don't know that much about, you know, the inner workings of the studio or it's like celebrity directors or anything like that necessarily, uh, is that there's a pretty obvious through line to a lot of their work. It's very Irish. It's very mythological. And uh, at least in a couple of their movies, they do this really interesting thing where they m- kind of mix up real history and then, you know, real mythology uh, and they just kind of like mash it all up into this story that gives it a very unique sensibility. And a lot of people have compared their movies to Miyazaki, which I'm pretty sure is one of their yeah. uh, stated influences. But it's also very, you know, pro-environment, very like there's a really distinct and thorough love and fondness of nature and animals and the forest in these movies. That's really reminiscent of some of Miyazaki's stuff. Uh, so there's just there's kind of this heart to cartoon saloon stuff that just feels very unique there's also a bit of um like another animator's influence that's like not as prominent because it's a very different category but like the mark baker who's like an english animator he ended up doing peppa pig later but he's been around a long time and he's like an oscar nominated guy but the that's the way he uses flatness and things almost feel like children's pop-up book styles I feel like they're bringing some of that in. Like they seem, Cartoon Saloon seems to really want to speak to a a pretty young audience. I think they want to tell a more classic fable. Whereas like on the other side of things you have, especially in these, the 2009 era, you have studios like DreamWorks that are always dropping in like jokes for adults and all that stuff. Like these guys don't care about any of that. They want to tell fables they want to recall art history and make it really accessible for a young audience and for adults to appreciate the artistry of it more than like the inside joke of it yeah yeah i do i feel like these more than a lot of at least american animation studios they feel more like art movies to me Mm -hmm. even beyond the first one i think has most of that like this is beyond the art school or like student like university project feel uh, which I really mean in the best way. You know, it just feels like the most experimental. It's really obvious that like Secret of Kells is their first movie because it has so many seeds of ideas that they then go on in Song of the Sea and Wolfwalkers to expand on and flesh out in really cool ways. And I love how much they use mythology and the language of mythology and fable like you're mentioning is so good. In a way, I get kind of sad watching some of these movies because... I feel a lack in our own culture of having this kind of thing. There's not that much when I think of like American mythology. Like, what is that? (laughs) I don't know. But I feel like we don't have it. And I I don't know. There's something very. Yeah. There's like a 
early America. Well, I, I was going to get into this a little later, but just the regard for artistry in general, like the way this story talks about, like the value of these illustrated manuscripts and the wars that happen over them. That's not anything America is familiar with. Like we've never fought over a famous book, really. (laughs) (laughs) Like America doesn't care about literacy in these ways because we just haven't been around long enough for the book to be of like that deep value or, you know, early symbolic language. We just don't have these these things in our DNA, we have like the Wild West, which is like a time of ignorance and violence. And that's what, yeah, like there and are made no art. There are really. certainly artistic, like or American, you know, things that I guess you could point to and say like this is the mythology of America, but it's not stuff that I look upon very favorably. Not it's all like colonial, like right. you know, things that I'm just like this feels empty. It doesn't feel you know rich to me. I have a sadness because of that, and these these movies make me think of that. Yeah, it's like our country is too new. To, to really have things aged enough to be myth. And right? not only that, but I mean, we did, like Native American cultures have, you know, plenty of like wonderful culture and history. And it's like not our, like, it's just, America has so many problems. Ireland has, you know, the same, not the same problems, I guess there are, like Wolf Walkers has a whole storyline that kind of directly confronts like the, you know, British presence in Ireland and, you know, historical, like they definitely reckon with some of that. Mm-hmm. It's just cool to see how much love that these movies the studio has for like the history of Ireland and like kind of the the native cultures and their stories. And it's mm-hmm. honestly really cool and kind of interesting to see it put side by side with Christianity and Christian imagery and not even having them clash necessarily because there is definitely some of that too. There's sometimes the... You know, there's the Christian people and the, the movies who are like, you know, that's made up. Like, these creatures don't exist. But they obviously do in the reality of the film. Like, yes, there's like fairies in the woods or whatever. And I think that's really cool and kind of beautiful and just like not something that I see a lot. No. And I was just reading a couple reviews about this movie at at its time. And, you know, like I, I'm, I'm really trying to think about this in the context of like when this came out and the types of things people did. Like 10, 10 years ago, a little more than 10 years ago. Feels a bit of a, a lifetime away just based on the, the last like five, four years or so of American <laughs> history, like the types of stories that we tell, like the, I, I haven't seen Wolf Walkers yet, so I can't really speak to like what's that, what that is about, but I'm sure something like The Secret of Kells would not be made in this way today. It would be about different things. It wouldn't lean so deeply on the rich tapestry of like ancient storytelling. It would try to make the character of Brendan be a little more, I don't know, relatable or or something like that. I just don't think people would make a movie like this quite the same way anymore. Who's to say? You're absolutely right in that I don't know what it was like in 2009. (laughs) Completely (laughs) forgotten. That was 100 years ago or more. Okay, you want to give a little... Okay, so we're going to get into a little bit more about this movie specifically, Secret of Kells. Uh, So to give you a little in a nutshell synopsis, it takes place kind of in these remote Irish forests. Uh, There's this abbey that is mid-construction being built out here, this perfectly circular structure, this really high wall. And uh, Abbot Kellogg is, you know, building this fortress essentially to 
defend from Viking attack, which has been happening, you know, all over. Stories are reaching this abbey of other abbeys all across the country that have been raided and destroyed. And like the monks there, you know, have been murdered by these Viking invaders. So he is very concerned about, you know, keeping his abbey safe, keeping his people safe. And in the meantime, Brendan, who is the ostensible protagonist of this movie, is a young kid, and uh, the abbot is his uncle. So Brendan is his nephew. And Brendan works in the scriptorium, uh, which is where they're doing calligraphy, you know, illuminated manuscripts. That's something that comes up a lot in this movie and may or may not be the entire point, really. And things kind of change for everybody when this revered illuminator, Brother Aiden from Iona, arrives. And Iona is this abbey that was destroyed that he's from. And he fled and he's, you know, seeking refuge in Kells, which is the name of this monastery. And he befriends Brendan and they sort of start working together on this book, this illuminated manuscript, the Book of Kells, which is, you know, the four gospels in one kind of gilded tome. And that's sort of the overall structure of the story a lot of different stuff happens as well it's almost hard to to give a good summary because (laughs) of the aforementioned kind of story weirdness where this movie doesn't quite play by all of the rules yeah it's not a a typical adventure um, because of the meaning built into each of these scenes yeah you're right it's really hard to explain which i think was something that put me off to it originally i don't know if i just didn't want to think that hard about something when this came out (laughs) I don't know. I think it's genuinely challenging because it's sort of a quiet movie. And I do find it a little bit hard to sit still with this movie, but I don't hold it against the movie, really. It's just not very, it's not in your face. It's not like screaming for your attention. It's all sort of pleasant. And there's no like, in my mind, really sharp, you know, peaks. Mm-hmm. There's that one particular, the Crom Krug scene that I was thinking of that sort of has that, you know, the darkness. and But for the most part, things are just kind of pleasantly happening <laughs> with the music. It's like very soothing. Right. It doesn't demand your attention. It like invites you in. I was I was thinking of it kind of like an ASMR movie in a way because you you do have to listen very closely. And if you're not from Ireland, there's a bit of like, the challenge of listening through the accent of these characters. And it it doesn't try at all, really, to fit in, like you're saying, this kind of world of American cartoon storytelling that's going on in 2009. It's like not big in your face, like you're saying. It's It wants you to meet it on its level. Like you get a lot of proper nouns and you get a lot of kind of Christian terminology right away. And you also get a place in a setting that's just not quite familiar if you're you know, speaking as like a young kid sitting down to watch this movie, um, because that's kind of the audience for it. It, uh, it doesn't really help you in. It's hard to know where to start with the aesthetic of this because it's pulling from so many different places, right? If, if we start with animation, like you were saying, there's a very Miyazaki appreciation of nature going on. True. There's the kind of art movement of like climped compositional work going on in some of the uh, the compositions of scenes. And then further than that, there's like tributes to a certain animation that's just not like mainstream in that Disney way. Like you were talking about kind of the appreciation of Disney's golden age. But then there's also the Richard Williams, Thief and the Cobbler, unfinished animation, which is like definitely playing a big role. Yeah. And, the way this movie moves 
and use his backgrounds. I thought it was really cool when I read that they had taken a lot of inspiration from The Thief and the Cobbler, which if you don't know, uh, was this passion project by Richard Williams, who's kind of a renowned animator. He was like the sort of driving force behind um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, among other things. And this was this, I think he worked on The Thief and the Cobbler for like 20 years and it never came to fruition, but you can find cuts of it online. Uh, and people have, like, the recobbled cut is one I've heard of where they, you know, they insert a lot of the unfinished animation. But I thought it was so cool when I saw that that was one of their, like, specific influences because aesthetically it does make a lot of sense. Um, Richard Williams's whole shtick kind of was, like, doing everything on ones, doing everything crazily detailed, just kind of like an unrealistic amount of labor to do the, like, to accomplish his vision, <laughs> I think, unfortunately. But his use of geometric kind of composition, uh, it was just one of those things where I read it and I was like, oh my God, like, of course, you know, of course they're really inspired that by that because how the Thief and the Cobbler has all of these just like wild perspective shifts and like incorporates like the, the checkerboard pattern of a tile floor or something like that in these really interesting ways that it, it kind of informs so much of Cartoon Saloon's entire aesthetic. Mm-hmm. across the board not just this movie but i just think that's that's awesome really i mean it's really not that often that you see the thief and the cobbler being pulled from as you know a direct aesthetic inspiration you just don't it's one of those things it's like it's up here in this tower like you're down here kind of doing your own thing yeah you are not invited into that realm you know when i was in college it's kind of early internet era like when i went to school that was my first access to like high speed internet and the thief and the cobbler was something i remember looking up right away because i had heard about it i had i don't even know where i might have seen it before but i wasn't able to kind of piece together the whole story in the whole movie until i had like internet access so it does make sense that these this studio Coming of age in 1999, this Thief in the Cobbler was like a big talking point. And the fact that it's so different than Disney just made it cool. Because even though it's it's got a bit of an Aladdin vibe, it's using a lot of uh, kind of Arabian Nights flavor. But it's pulling on the the point of view of the artist at the time and the way it's using like the isometric like flattening of perspective and like Persian miniature design and pulling all of that from that time and place and letting the characters like explore the way perspective works. So it's almost like a technical game that Studio Saloon is also playing with in Secret of Kells, where they let their characters run through these spaces that couldn't exist in reality, but they're like the technology of the artists at the time, right? Yeah. It's just, it's just fun. It's like cartoon experimentation. More than more than anything. I think the use of that type of perspective or like lack of perspective and how they use these shapes compositionally is one of the most exciting things about their, the whole thing, like their studio, everything. Because uh, it just gets cooler and cooler. And they are like, Secret of Kells, we, we've said this so many times, you can tell that they're trying out new stuff that they haven't done before and they're feeling it out and they're figuring it out. And as their movies have gone on, I really feel like they have perfected a lot of those hmm. or found a lot more confidence in like this, you know, visual language. We're using it in this way. And like, I'm just blown away by how they present things and how they use composition and when they choose to use perspective and when they don't. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to talk about how that evolves and how it blends with other um, maybe clearer forms of of narrative storytelling yeah. and like giving in to maybe what an audience wants. This movie doesn't really give in in, in a lot of ways. And uh, part of it is just the fact, I think, that it's rooted in like what would be a fairly obscure piece of like art culture if you're a young, you know, of course, I am mostly speaking of this from like, you know, a Western American point of view. This would be different if you were in Ireland. I'm not there. So I'm saying the Book of Kells is like fairly obscure. Unless you actually care about books and art history, you're not going to really know too much about what the Book of Kells is, right? And that's the jumping off point for this whole thing. You have to be invested in this book right from the get-go. Or at least, I, uh, to be totally honest with you, when I first sat down and watched this movie, like I wasn't really aware that that was a real thing. Like I, I did not know that this was like about an actual artifact that existed in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of treated it as such, you know? And I think there is a more of a richness to the movie when you do know that it's based off, like, you know, these abbeys existed and were real places. Did they look like this? Maybe not, you know? Did the events go down in exactly this way? It's just something you don't see, you know? You're not sitting at home watching Lion King and being like, oh, yeah, Pride Rock, like the place that really exists. (laughs) Like, it's just not the same. Right. Well, I think that's, you know, Ireland being a smaller place and just sort of less represented in the world of art. Like, imagine being a young animator growing up in Ireland so far away from, like, Hollywood or even New York, like these places, you know, touchstones of, like, creativity they're they they're doing their own thing and they just sort of have to i think they really maybe just to survive as a studio needed to embrace their own local storytelling i'm just projecting here but i'm just trying to figure out how you arrive at like really committing to like such an ambitious project when you're such a young studio to not just be like oh let's talk about uh you know kids on skateboards like something people would want to see like they're they're talking about their history well and here's something i don't this i don't have a conclusion here but it's something i want to float that maybe we can both do some research into I will preface this by saying, interestingly, I will note that as far as I can tell, according to wikipedia.org, every single cartoon saloon movie has not made its budget back. Oh, which is interesting. Very interesting to me. So, for example, just pulling from Wikipedia, budget for Secret of Kells, $8 million. Box office, $3.5 million. Hmm. And I was like, Huh? You know, but knowing the history of animation, I guess that's not always so surprising. Song of the Sea, though, is the same situation. The budget was $7.5 million and the box office was 4.4. I don't know what the funding looks like for Cartoon Saloon. Right. And in the U.S. and in a lot of places, you know, but I know the U.S. studios best, but like... Disney is a gajillion dollar corporation. They can mm-hmm. afford to back it. And even Leica, the stop motion studio um, based out of Oregon, is owned by you know, the Nike Air. They're able to operate at a loss because almost all of their movies, I think, have also run at a loss. They're able mm. to do that because you know where the money is coming from. Right. Like Essentially, the, that studio is a, like a rich people passion project. <laughs> It's always a drag to find that out, but that's just how things work. (laughs) Like that's, yeah, that's how it goes. Kind of a bummer. What are you going to do? 
Um, but I, I don't know what the situation is for Cartoon Saloon. But I will say I am aware that European studios or not European studios necessarily, but like in Europe, funding for the arts is a lot right. more. It's a lot more <laughs> than it is in the U.S. where, you know, I had a, a colleague when I was at the Atlantic um, went to Europe for a month's break to work on a short that was being funded by um, some kind of like governmental situation there. We don't really have that in the U.S. So I don't know. Is there some of that maybe going on with Cartoon Saloon? I don't know. It does say it's an Irish, French, Belgian movie. There were a lot of hands in this project. So that's something that I think would be cool to look into. But my main point, not really having answers to those questions, is that I wonder if that is affecting it. Because if you want to tell a story because you're passionate about the place that you came from and the history of that place, and you want to do it through animation, uh, it, as long as you can find somebody to pay to do that, you can do it. And you can make a weird story, you know? In the U.S., like, who's going to pay for that? Because we're all like, you know, it needs to da, 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 and it has to have a cartoon character that we can make toys of and like that kind of thing. Like it's undeniable that that is a big part of where our you know, the bottom line comes in. Yeah. So I wonder, you know, how much is that accurate for Cartoon Saloon and you know, how much does that affect what they're able to make? Because God knows I would make the weirdest movies if people would just pay me to do it. Yeah, I think it, it, it all. Wow. I'm glad you brought up all that and the kind of points about government funding in Europe and how that's so different because it does kind of put the pieces a little together. So my experience with some of that is I've, I've done a lot of projects with funding in the United States and in Europe. So it does influence the way you talk about things. And for one, because sometimes when a project is funded by the government, they ask that you kind of skew it towards whatever their agenda is. So if you're doing something educational, for a certain audience that's probably going to be given to them for free as a resource, you need to talk a bit about what that is. So like last episode, I mentioned briefly a project that was about the creative economy of upstate New York that was paid for by a government organization and given out to kids for free. So it was my storytelling style filtered through a topic that I needed to really dig into. And I was able to do it how I wanted, but it still needed to be in the guise of a resource. So Secret of Kells actually kind of feels like a cultural resource in that way. And I've done similar things for the European Research Council. And you you kind of feel like you're part of the culture a little more because the government is respecting the type of work you do. And the artists I was meeting in Europe when I was doing this project were a lot more grateful and felt more connected to like the history of their country and using that as inspiration. Whereas in America, we're all on our own shitty journey. <laughs> and we want to talk about ourselves and our adventures through the world and our struggles because the government isn't helping us. And I think it- Please you know, help. I mean, <laughs> You, you can tell stories about America, in, like obviously, but I, I think it changes the artist's relationship with, uh, you know, their homeland Yeah. <laughs> in a way to have, uh, you know, where, where the money comes from makes a difference is all I'm saying. Yeah. So, yeah, in conclusion, there is no conclusion, but I, I think all of that is really interesting and I will make a point to look into that more. Yeah. So I'm going to jump back to the, the inspiration for this specific projects, Secret of Kells and the Book of Kells. So I just did a little bit of digging on 
the book itself because I've had a uh, a love affair with books. I'm not a fast reader. I think I I think I love the idea of books more than I <laughs> I read books. I'll take it. So the Book of Kells is like iconically one of those. So right now it sits in Dublin and it's been there since like 1660. And just, I love saying dates when you're talking about Europe because it just makes America feel so dumb and young in a lot of ways. Like you can walk into a pub in Ireland that's from like 1498 or something, like places that are still in business. It's just crazy to, so like right off the bat, just the span of time this movie is asking you to, to look at is quite epic and a little hard to enter into right away. The book itself represents this kind of pre-medieval era of Christianity, like coming to fruition and a rejection of like pagan ideals, right? Because right off the bat, when this movie starts, we see like a closed in wall around a central tower and that tower, that abbey is still there. Like you can see photos of it. It still stands. So all, all these little artifacts that the movie's touching on, you can go and see them. And I think that's actually pretty important. So if I was like a cool little Irish kid, and maybe I hadn't really like embraced, you know, where I grew up and what it means to be Irish, it would be pretty, pretty awesome to like watch this cartoon, think about it a little bit, because maybe it's the only cartoon you got to watch, you watch it a bunch of times, and then like go out into the world and see these kind of Celtic knots and spirals and this like zoomorphic design appearing in museums and on buildings and like in these decorative arts, like around where you live. I, I think that's like kind of a magical thing this movie's doing that I hadn't really thought of before. And we wouldn't relate to it here in America in that way. So yeah. I'm kind of projecting, but I think that's kind of a, a magical thing, the way they base it on this book. No, I think so. I mean, at the the one bottom line we can always come down to in this movie is that it's obviously like there's a lot of love for Ireland in it. Mm-hmm. And everything that that entails, yeah, I, I, we definitely miss that in America. <laughs> so this is a movie about storytelling, basically, and it's about literacy in the same, not in the same way, but I mean, with Rats of Nim, we kind of ended up digging into these ideas too, because that's a movie about illuminated manuscripts in a way as well. It like starts off with a glowing book. <laughs> oh, that's so true. You know, it's like this kind of idea of the the special artifact of the book, like the preservation of a story. Yeah, I mean, what's an animation but like a preservation of a story, but in like a different medium. You know what I'm saying, man? <laughs> I, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling your vibes and putting it down. Well, and it's funny you were saying that because this doesn't feel like a good plus one to the point you were making. But it made me think of in this movie... Uh, when Brendan is afraid to open the Book of Kells initially because he's been told there's all these myths surrounding the book and he's been told that if a sinner looks at it, that it will strike him blind. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he's at that age where, you know, he believes that that might happen. And when he says that to Brother Aiden, he's like, oh, you really think that's going to happen? Yeah. (laughs) Well, like, well, it's your choice if you want to look at it or not. And it's just funny to me because that it really is about the power of the story to the point that there are stories about the story that make you afraid of how powerful the story is. Right. And it's also about like ignorance too, to believe that like this kind of line of magic and knowledge and wisdom, like all these, these points of um, like growth, like Brendan is so young, he doesn't quite understand that you, a book won't kill you when you look at it. (laughs) (laughs) Not this one, at least. And who knows what those villagers think out out around uh, 
and the and like inside the walls of the abbey. I mean, how often have they gotten to gaze upon one of these illuminated manuscripts? Yeah, probably not. There's a there's a really powerful moment at the end. It's real. It's right at the very end when you finally get to look inside the book. And um, the abbot is holding it in his hands and it doesn't have its gilded cover anymore. And he just like opens it. And just in that moment, I was really struck by the weight of what it would mean to see something like that at the time. And now it's so easy to take that for granted in a way. I mean, I don't have an illuminated manuscript in my home or, you know, anything like that. But you can see that imagery online or you can see it in museums. Uh, And we... Our quality of living, you know, in this kind of like modern industrialized society is so great that we have you know, magical artifacts all over that we don't appreciate anymore. But to see something like that in this time where your life really consists of uh, not being on the internet because you don't have that, <laughs> you're outside and you're working and you're doing stuff and you're living your life, like that would be vastly the most precious thing you would ever see or maybe be fortunate enough to touch at the time. It's just really cool. <laughs> it's just fascinating to me. Yeah, right. And you it and it, again it's another thing that's hard to relate to because all these digital tools are clearly recalling the tools of these olden days. Like colors in a lot of ways still retain like their emotional value that they would have had in this time. But the thing that's missing is like the relationship to the natural world, which is like what this movie's all about. But I love Looking at this movie a couple times over, the way the plot hinges on the production of a book, where you, like a part of the the hero's journey of this boy is going out and finding the resources to like make ink for the book, and that's like a, the real process that would have gone to gone through. So it's like you're you're really doing something. You're going on this like cool adventure, but you're doing it for the reasons that would have been essential to like making this story that you're living in also. It's just like a weird loop that the the, the whole story's stuck in a loop. You're doing <laughs> your job. This feels, I don't know if this is exactly the right time to insert this. Maybe it is. Maybe we're going to do it. But I saw some tweets recently, as one does, yeah. um, by somebody who has actually worked on a cartoon saloon movie uh, who I've known from the internet for quite some time and is super cool and very talented. Uh, Evan McNamara who was the Wolf Vision supervisor on Wolf Walkers. Uh, But he was tweeting the other day, I think too often animators fixate on what live action can't do or the unreal, the fantastic, rather than depicting the sublime mundanity of life. And then in a follow-up tweet, he was like, ah, yeah, like even having more incidental throwaway moments, like just tired of plot driving everything, Too many people read Saving the Cat and other screenwriting books, maybe. And what I'm taking from this and kind of applying to Secret of Kells and other stuff is that some of the plot weirdness that we, well, it it feels like plot weirdness to us, I think, because we're so primed to be looking for that, that storytelling thing. And I know even in past episodes, even I specifically have been like, this is what I think makes a good story, like blah, blah, blah. But it's not, I always want to caveat when I say stuff like that, because I know it's, you can't put like a one size fits all thing on anything. It's not valid. And I certainly can't, you know, and I don't want to ever come across like I know the right way to do blah, blah, blah. It's something that I like a lot. And I don't, not going back on anything I said, but I think things like this movie elude us initially 
or maybe have us, we hesitate initially and are like, is this boring? Or like, what? I don't think it is. It's just that like, instead of everything just happening and doing stuff and whatever, like one of the most pleasurable parts of this movie is them making the ink or just looking at the book together and figuring out how to do that. And, you know, there are just these sequences where Brendan and Aiden are hanging out and Aiden is obviously kind of this like mentor to him and talking to him about the book. And like they have this kind of playful relationship where Aiden is he's kind of like a funny older guy. <laughs> like he's not like teasing you necessarily. He's not being mean, but he's just like he's he's the kind of old guy that would like probably play a prank on you, you know, when you were a yeah, kid. But that you always totally. like looked up to really intensely. He's childlike. Um, And they spend a lot of time on that. And so I think initially, if we're looking at it through these eyes of, you know, like, why isn't this like, why isn't this Spider-Verse where like every single like, (laughs) you know, cog is perfectly tightened and like whatever. Um, And I think Spider-Verse is fucking great for that, as I've said, but I don't think it's mandatory and it's refreshing to see other stuff like this. It's nice to see those slice of life things uh, where it feels like, there's no point to this scene if we're like rigidly looking at it through this like one set of things, but it does have a point. Like it is saying something. It's just in this its own way that is not, you know, as over the top or as like, look at me, like I'm telling the story. Yeah. It has a different set of values. And I mean, a lot of other books have, a lot of other movies have books in them, but the way this movie cares about books is, you know, very different. So it, it's just like the values of the movie you have to kind of like come to terms with and meet. And the journey you take there can be like a rocky road. Like the first time I saw My Neighbor Totoro, I probably was kind of bored, I'll admit. But now it's like one of my favorite stories of all time because I learned to love it in my own way. You know, I, I, I am too old to like say I got everything that was cool the first time I saw it. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, Proud sometimes you I, was, I was just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> See, I love Totoro right away because the first time I saw it, I was probably like four years old. So I was like, this is great. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because I wanted to. And I don't want to spend too much time not talking about this movie. But I like this. This is like the first kind of not heavy plot driven film, I guess, that we've talked about. So it seems like a good opportunity to jump on that. But uh, I was thinking Kiki's Delivery Service, yeah. which I love so much. And I've always loved that movie. And I feel like I like it more every time I see it because... It's like the ultimate movie where there's no bad guy in that movie. There's no antagonist. The antagonist is like burnout and feeling bad about yourself and like not knowing what to do next. And I feel like I get so much out of that story. It can be so encouraging (laughs) at times to watch that. But there's so much of that movie that is like, she's helping an old lady, you know, make this thing, this pie for her, you know, granddaughter and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's an absolute delight. So it's always worth, you know, looking at at stuff like that, too. And hopefully at some point later, we can do an episode where we can get into that type of storytelling more and wrap our heads more around that. Yeah, definitely. Well, to compare, so the Miyazaki flavor of this movie to me comes from more maybe the medium of paint and some of like the use of color or the setting, but it is actually quite different than the way Miyazaki does like verisimilitude. And I think you've brought up those little like moments of realism, like when a character moves their foot in a way that feels real, like a a kid feeling anxious or like you just said a scene where somebody bakes a pie, like all these cultural touchstones that put us in this place. 
To me, the Book of Kells is not emotional because it uses that very differently. It's like we're already in the Book of Kells. Like, so the Book of Kells exists if you know history. It's in a museum somewhere. We're hearing the story of the character who brought that book to fruition. So we know he's not going to die. And he's also kind of in the book. Like by the end of the movie, he's in it. So it's like the book is an artifact, but it's not really an artifact in the movie as much as it's the thing that's like slowly closing in around the character in the world. I don't know what I'm saying other than but I like it. it's, it's kind of a surreal loop that the movie is creating that uh, makes me feel like emotionally disconnected from Brendan's journey because it's so mythical. Yeah. His journey is like a, it's like the, it's like an old tapestry. It just happened. And that's all, you know? Yeah. Well, so, and this is drawing so much from mythology, but when you think about, God, I wish I had like the perfect myth to use as an example off the top of my head, but really any kind of fable story, a lot of the time you don't even hear the character's name. It'll just be like so-and-so, like Mm -hmm. the blacksmith was on his way to the whatever that kind of thing there's always a layer of detachment because it is a lot of the time educational you know or it's about it has a moral or something like that and the way that this movie is structured is sort of like that and um you know i don't think that the the filmmakers would be upset if we were like i emotionally related to the characters but i just don't it doesn't feel like it's the point yeah and it feels intentional, really. Like, I also don't think they would be upset if I, you know, said, like, I wasn't really worried about him dying at any point, And I didn't have, like, the... Because te- it's not the point. I don't worry about that when I'm hearing a mythological story. That doesn't mean I don't like those stories, right? Like, you know, I'm not upset about, I don't know, like, Odysseus doing hero stuff. I'm not really worried about it. But that doesn't mean I'm not engaged in the story. <laughs> yeah, it's just a different type of engagement. And in my brain... You know, when we sit down to do this show, I like the idea of kind of like going, calling upon the journey we've already gone on and comparing what we're talking about to what we saw before. In a little way, it's like we're walking through like the history of animation. So, you know, when I think about like talking about Burrow last week and all this like emotional investment in these cute little characters that basically are stand-ins for types of people, this movie is just a hard turn away from that in that. I just, I don't feel quite his emotional connection in the way because it's it's such from a different time and place. So yeah, that's kind of just all all I'm really saying about the that. But I do like to think about the way this character just inevitably ends up in this book. Like that's that's a cool little like magical realism thing that I guess when we get to the end of the movie, we'll talk about that because it's it's got a strange ending. <laughs> Yeah, the end. Yeah, it is strange. Uh, okay, so where do we go from here? Well, I just wanted to dig into some of the the visual stylings of this movie a bit more. So another thing the Book of Kells does that I think just pairs well with the animation is all these like manuscripts were worked on by various scribes over long periods of time. So as you look through them, I think you can probably go on Google Books or something and look at some of this work and high res, you can see the handwriting change over time. And you can see the influence of like different artists who maybe had a finer eye for detail or were more character driven or could do like, I don't know, a straight line better than another (laughs) artist. And to me, that's just, you know, we talk about collaboration on this a lot and probably these books feel magical because 
I would imagine the people of Cartoon Saloon could have gone and looked at the Book of Kells in an art class at some point. You know, they I don't know how far they were from Dublin, but I'm sure they've seen I would guess they've seen this book in real life. And it evokes to see something like that in real life would remind you that it was made by hand and a, a, a group of people. And that would appeal to a cartoonist, I would think, because it's just another form of collaboration. So I thought that was just something that came into my mind researching. This is just a quick interjection, and I want you to keep going. But I thought that earlier when you were talking about the movie being about a book, and then the movie is kind of the book and all of this stuff. And I was like, and it's funny because it's not just a book. It's also like a drawn book. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny. It just wraps back onto what we said. Like, we're talking about Spider-Verse, and it's like how all, a lot of these movies end up having to do with artist stuff or being about artist stuff. And I was just like, it didn't even occur to me until you said that. Right. That it's kind of about art again. <laughs> well, it's like that little thing. I In the Spider-Verse episode, I had this moment that I was like sucked out of the story and just felt like I was watching the story engage with itself. Whenever Spider-Verse starts to show you panels, I think this movie gives me that same feeling. Whenever we see the, the Celtic design patterns and the characters moving around them, I feel like I'm watching this movie with the world and the artists because they're also talking about like an aesthetic that goes back farther than them. They're not laying claim to Celtic design in this movie. They're not like, yeah, man, this is our own style. We sat down and we just like made this up like because we're artists. They're, they're, call, they're standing on the shoulders of a history of artists and they're not too proud to admit it. You know, and I think that just it it just engages with you on a different level when you realize that they're doing that. I agree with you. Cut that out that I said that. But yeah, I mean, I do totally agree. I just don't have anything cool to add. That's like fine. I, I just kind feel of, like you nailed it. I know I'm not. <laughs> I'm just I had all these thoughts and I'm just working through them. And I'm sorry they're not like, yes, ending for you. <laughs> I think this is honestly really great. Some of it is we are just processing this movie. It's harder. Yeah. We're grappling with it. It's not as it's not the same as like Toy Story. It's like, yeah, we get that. <laughs> this is a little more challenging. Yeah, I think audience, if you're listening, I've edited this well, so it sounds more natural. But like Caitlin and I are learning to talk about this awesome studio because we're watching the movie where they learn to speak to an audience. <laughs> and I think it's we're we're just sort of like grappling with how to have a conversation about their look and their style without <laughs> without sounding dumb. <laughs> well, and it's hard. Like, I know I keep talking about all the other movies, but I just feel like my love for this studio has grown so much, mm -hmm. you know, with the rest of their output. And then it just makes me feel even worse that I haven't watched Breadwinners yet. I've honestly been afraid to do it because I know that it's going to be emotional. And so... <laughs> I've just like, it just, I don't know. We're all in a weird place emotionally in this day and age. So I just haven't yet, but I, I am going to very soon. Oh, so I got this back to Secret of, of Cal's here. I'm deep in it. I can't, you can't take me out of this movie. I, I mean, don't want to. I'm going to push you into it harder. <laughs> okay. So Tom Moore said this cool thing that I'm sure is going to come up more as we get into these other movies, because to me, this is the big thing that they're doing as visual storytellers. When the characters are safe, and they're on um, like friendly levels of adventure where like Brendan is engaging with the characters that are helping him learn about his world. Everything is flat and it's very Book of Kells-ish and Celtic and it's safe. It, it, it's symmetrical a lot. It's well-balanced. It's very kind of grid-like in the way a lot of the art movements that they're referencing 
are. But when the characters are in danger, there's a perspective shift. And I think some of this comes from the, the wildness of the thief and the cobbler. When you get uh, like the thief running, he'll like enter into a thing that does sort of an Escher style breaking of perspective where he can no longer run because the lines have like crossed over into another dimension. And suddenly what was once a floor is now a wall. Like that, that movie does these kind of like interesting games with perspective. So Tom Moore is using perspective to say, okay, now our characters are in danger. We're looking at this at like a three quarter turn. And it's once I heard that little interview and I went back and watched the movie, it, it becomes very interesting because you notice right away that when it's flat, it's safe. And when it's at an angle, it's dangerous, which is something I assume they pull from more when they get into the later movies, because it's such an interesting approach to dealing with like the, the ebbs and flows of narrative. Well, and it's cool. I hadn't seen that quote before. And then I saw it here in the notes and then I watched the movie again and it really jumped out at me, especially because it'll be so fleeting. There's like, you know, these long scenes where maybe something kind of scary is, you know, happening and we're still in this flat perspective world. And then it'll be, you know, like a two second shot from that three quarter angle. And it's mm -hmm. just like, oh, wow. Like it, they don't break it very frequently. It is really interesting. And I haven't watched any of the other movies since I saw that quote. So I am really curious to keep an eye out for it. You know, again, going back to this being their first movie and them experimenting and learning a lot of stuff, I do notice that the animation is more simple in this movie than it is in later ones. Mm -hmm. Even Song of the Sea, like there's, you know, a significant like look evolution there. Uh, and so I wonder, you know, how much is it kind of technical stuff as well? I don't know. Yeah. We're going to keep an eye on it. We're going to, we're going to get into it. So on, on that note of the way characters kind of engage with their world, I was thinking a little bit more about the way background design works in this. And once we get into the plot, these things will just pop up. So I'm trying not to like dig too deep into them yet, but the way characters are presented with obstacles in their world is pretty interesting. So for example, like when you learn to draw a composition for like a comic book or a cartoon or any scene that has depth, you learn about tangents, which is basically like, let's say you have a character standing in a doorway. You never want to align like their nose against a wall because if the line of the nose meets the line of the wall, it draws your attention and flattens the image instantly and breaks the illusion of depth. So if you're having a character stand in a doorway, either move them far enough from the doorway where they're not overlapping or overlap completely where there's no question about two lines meeting. That's in case you're not an artist and have never done that, that's kind of like the game of playing with tangents because our brains want to align these things because they're pretty pleasing. So this movie plays with that kind of philosophy of art a bit because a lot of things align in pleasing ways, which breaks the illusion of depth, but also conveys the, the symbolism of something, right? In the way like, for example, when the characters are, are climbing the oak tree, Suddenly, we'll be viewing them through a little window in the oak, but it's just a cutout that recalls um, shapes we see in the Book of Kells, but it's not actually a shape we would see in nature. It's just like a clean geometric form. So suddenly, we don't feel like we're in the tree as much as we feel like we are literally in the Book of Kells. And uh, I don't know, that's, again, one of those things that's presenting itself is like, this is why I'm not emotionally invested in this movie, because I'm just thinking about the artistry of it. Yeah, I mean... 
It's interesting you say that because I don't feel like those things go against each other. But I do spend a lot more time thinking about the artistry than I do about the plot. Well, I'll just say this when I just to be clear. So when I say like emotional investment, I mean like the Jesse Mm -hmm. character in Toy Story 2. Like I'm never going to meet any character in Secret of Kells on that level that I meet Jesse in Toy Story 2. And to me, part of that is because this story is so symbolic in that way. I'm not going on that style of emotional journey, but I'm going on like an artist's emotional journey. If if we can see the difference in, in that. Yeah, 100, 100%. And I do. When I watch this movie, I feel and a, a little bit with Song of the Sea too, which I don't think you've seen that yet either. Nope. But those, I relate to them more, like as we've said, a little bit more of like an educational or I'm watching uh, just like a classic story. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there aren't really Jesse type characters in those types of stories. And I don't love them any less for it. But that is true. And then in Wolfwalker specifically, I do get that. There is some of that final, like, not finally, because I'm not sitting here like waiting for it. But it's interesting. And I do. I wonder why. And we'll talk about that, too. I'm sure a comparison. But there are characters in that movie that there's there's a lot more given to the emotional weight and the the kind of intimacy that you have with them it's a little bit more of a personal story and so that's that's also an interesting evolution uh and i don't know if that's indicative of a greater chance i don't know what they've got coming down the pipe after that so that will also be interesting i would think to talk again about the studio a bit i mean they're growing they're responsible for more employees like not to get suddenly practical after talking about all this art but you do always talking about money (laughs) but i mean really that's how you get this stuff done as we've said a million times so finding your connection with the audience that's going to pay you to do what you want to do and finding that middle ground is part of it and even in the trailers of wolf walkers you can see that oh this just feels a little bit more accessible to an american audience it's like aspiring to another level of what they've already built but you can also feel that like the characters just hit you in a different way than they do in some of this earlier work but i guess that's the nature of being an animator anyway you're going to make more accessible characters as you build your skills but yeah who knows but like the characters on in wolfwalkers would be on a shirt i could see that you know, whereas this doesn't, but it, whatever that ineffable quality where they transfer from not being on a shirt to being on a shirt, they have. It is a thing. Yeah. Like we didn't make that up. That's real. That's behind the scenes. So other than the magic of the fact that this movie is like 95 or 90% drawn by hand, just a, a couple things on the themes before we get into the plot. So what I, what I was kind of pulling out of this is... Just this basic concept of reconnecting with nature seems to be like what this movie is about. And there's something interesting going on here that it's really a story about Christianity, but they've managed to take all that out in the way Disney would extract all like cultural reference from their early works, right? You don't know Pinocchio is an Italian story when you watch it in the same way you don't know this is like a Christian story when you watch it. I just think that's interesting to be able to strip out those sort of meanings from something. Well, and you're touching on something that I wanted to get at earlier, and I feel like I was just failing at articulating a greater point. Or I guess I hadn't... I don't have... I still don't have a definitive conclusion. And again, I don't want to spend too much time just constantly talking about Cartoon Saloon as a whole, but I guess this is probably a good movie to do it on. 
Uh, but it's something that I like a lot about their movie, and I can't quite figure it out. I, but they they do that. It's like there are these strong Christian references, like real historical, like Christianity was a thing, but with no commentary on if it's right or not, or if it's true right. or not. I think that from like a Western perspective is so weird, having grown up in a culture that's like, here are VeggieTales, an animated cartoon series <laughs> of talking vegetables that teach you about how Jesus is, you know, the lamb or whatever, <laughs> and, which in hindsight is very strange to me. But as a kid, I was totally on board. <laughs> um we're not used to that. And there is a lot of that in American culture. Even if you're not Christian or raised Christian, I feel I was. I was you know, raised Catholic and I went to Catholic school like my all the way through high school. Uh, so you know, I was in it all the time. But that's what that is. Even like Prince of Egypt, DreamWorks, you know, 2D animated Prince of Egypt, this whole movie, uh, which honestly is a really fantastic movie and is I feel like not enough people, a lot of people do talk about it still, but you know, if you just haven't seen it in a long time, like do, like it looks really good. It's, you know, it's kind of cool. Watch it. Uh, but it, it's predicated on the whole, like the reality of that world is like, God is real. Like God is the burning bush, like all of this stuff. There's no question it, you know, this was made to appeal to Christian audiences as like, this is a real story that we're telling you. And then to look at Cartoon Saloon's output where it's like Christianity is real, da 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 da. What is very interesting is, either, first of all, there's no, you know, God came and he did this. So you have like perfect verification that exists. Right. But there is that for all of the like fey, mystical, magical elements of the story. So, you know, we have the fairy in the woods that can turn into a wolf and that kind of thing. So, and I just, I don't know, like I, almost my brain just like shorts out here a little bit, I think, because in any other situation, I would be like, what are they saying about these things? And I don't, I don't know. What are you saying about these things? I don't know, but I like it a lot. And it makes me laugh in Wolf Walkers just occasionally. A character will be like, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, <laughs> just as like a little swear or whatever. And I'm like, you do not see that. And it's just, that's it. You know, there's no more or less to it. But I was just like, oh, God, like, th this is happening in, like, the real world, like, our world, right? you know? But then it also has these, like, magical elements. And it's just something that is so unique to Cartoon Saloon, I think, and I'd love to know more about that. I want to talk to them about, you know, their feelings on all of these things and how they uh, fit together in the same world. It's just cool. Yeah. Well, I guess for now, you'll just have to keep talking to me about it. Should we, <laughs> <laughs> should we get into the, the plot of the movie? I think we should do it. Now is okay. the time. Cool. Let's take a quick little break and then we'll hop back into the Abbey. Oh, okay. Let's do it. Can you uh, hop into an Abbey? Take me to church? Uh, maybe. <laughs> there's, to church. there's only one vision. You want to get into this movie? Start taking a closer look with the eye of what is a column kill <laughs> yeah you know, the glass eyeball that i have here yeah the cute little eye i definitely have yeah <laughs> let's tune that crystal eye to the secret of kels so like uh you know like any good fantasy story we get a we get a little bit of mythology that to set us in to the world so this movie begins in a storm and we're looking at the the devastation of the island of Iona. This is one of those things, only on a rewatcher, you're going to see how this scene really fits into the bigger picture, which is a fun move with, I feel like, fantasy storytelling is to kind of present a little myth at the top. 
just to set the mystery of the world, right? You're quite right. But I do want to say, and this is me applying my cold, hard Western sensibilities to this. Uh-oh. But in hindsight, what she's saying, this narration is being delivered by a character that we meet later in the movie, who's this fairy character. She's talking about, you know, I've seen all of this stuff. I've seen, you know, good things and I've seen bad things. And I've also seen this book that turned darkness into light. And that's a thing, UK, the Book of Kells and, you know, the Secret of Kells comes up on the screen. But I don't exactly know what she's talking about. Yeah, I was reading the quote over. Like even now I don't. (laughs) So she literally says, I lived through many ages through the eyes of salmon, deer and wolf. I have seen the Northmen invading Ireland destroying all in search of gold. I've seen suffering in the darkness, yet I have seen beauty thrive in the most fragile of places. I have seen the book, the book that turned darkness into light. Well, I think it's just, I like the first part a lot because I, I always like this sort of background noise in this movie and other cartoon saloon movies about kind of the ancientness of the world mm-hmm. and how it's aware and watching and, you know, seeing things. And so I like that. And I don't really need it to add up to anything. It just, like, what does the book mean to this character? And I don't know. And they don't ever really say. Right. It's it's a weird setup. It's more just the flavor of, you know, where because we, we also see Brother Aiden sailing away from the island of Iona. So we know that like something bad happened and then we meet him later. I don't know if we're supposed to like recognize that that was him. Uh, a little kid probably wouldn't. But yeah, it's a weird setup because she she doesn't seem to have too much invested in like the idea of books. She's like the pagan mindset of this story. She's just looking at the natural world, right? Yeah, I think that's something like there there is no conclusion that we can reach here. And we've sort of touched on it previously. <laughs> I, I think that's something that's interesting to me, though, is the juxtaposition of those two elements, the Christian and the pagan, and what their relation is to each other. And even in this, it's not clear. I don't even dislike that. Sort of just calling it out and drawing attention to it because it's intriguing to me. To me, it's a little like, I don't know, it's like maybe the changing of the guard type of thing in... All right, so Lord of the Rings. Not, I mean, a, a lot of fantasy stuff ties back to Lord of the Rings style to- storytelling. So in that book series, it's the like en- any good fantasy story. <laughs> yeah, it's the end of Middle Earth, right? The elves are leaving, and it's the Age of Man, which is a different ideology. And the movie starts. The whole series starts with um, Kate Blanchett. <laughs> I don't remember the character's name. Kate Blanchett. Galadriel. Yeah, Galadriel talking about how things that you know were once forgotten should not have been or whatever she says yeah to me yeah. it's kind of the same thing it's like the the, pe- the world is changed yeah the world is shifting like we've moved inside the abbey like we have books we have society and outside of the world now feels a little more dangerous because we simply just don't understand it but yeah and it's just it, watching this I, I just wonder like how do people so there's this abbot the Abbot Kellogg that we meet pretty shortly. And his role throughout this movie is kind of to be the strict parent, mm-hmm. sort of. He's Brendan's uncle, who is sort of our protagonist uh, as a young kid. And he's kind of, you know, to keep you safe, you need to stay in the walls. Like, don't go out into nature. There's this, like, clear, hard line that's drawn. Yeah. Uh, and then you have Brother Aiden, who we've caught a glimpse of, and he shows up later, who is, seems a lot more connected to the forest 
and to nature. He's fine with going out and spending time, you know, in nature, apparently. I don't think you ever really see him out there, but he wants to go out and, uh, you know, get the ink materials. And one thing that I'll just bring up now and we could talk about as we go on is the cat. He has this cat, Pangerbon, this white cat, mm -hmm. uh, who has a very striking aesthetic resemblance to this white wolf that we'll see later that actually is Ashling in kind of this wolf form. And it just draws such a hard visual connection between those two. Yeah. Which is really interesting because Brother Aiden is also the one who is like, I need to make the Book of Kells like this like Christian gospel, you know? So like, what is this connection? Because it's just very interesting and not something that I'm used to seeing is like, can, you know, this Christianity, this movement of Christianity coexist with the the pagan world and like be comfortable alongside them? Right. Yeah. It, it is it right? It's one of those right. This is one of our sticking points whenever we talk about these animations because there's clearly a sacrifice of story sometimes for the pursuit of the love of moving stuff around the screen. And we're stuck with these questions as to like how does this add up? And this is definitely like one of those. Is it saying like really I think it simply comes down to like stop and smell the roses, look around you and bring that into your work. Make sure you go outside every once in a while. I mean, it, if you want to take it as like a simple children's story, it kind of is simply getting at that. But if you put it in the context of the real world and you talk about how this is the beginning of Christianity and the end of, you know, paganism, th then what is what is the place of those old beliefs? Like, is this movie saying there's room for both or do we even call them by those names anymore? It, it becomes complicated when you apply the real world to these fantasy worlds. Yeah, we have no answers, but I yeah. think it's a cool juxtaposition, at least like not something that I've seen before, really. Like, I don't think you would see something like that either in a lot of Western, like American stuff. People don't really like to be posing questions like that when religion is on the table. Yeah, no. It, it Yeah. So even right off the bat, after we have our little fantasy opening with a little bit of poetry and a title card we get a shot that kind of to me presents the whole style of this movie which is like a very graphical look at the abbey of kells so i sent you a picture in the chat of the uh the salters world map which is kind of a famous british world map of the time and this opening shot of the abbey really reminded me of this era of medieval map design and it just kind of talks about this, the persuasion of Christianity through art, which is kind of like a bit, you know, this movie is like about the role of Christianity or the, the messaging of Christianity a little bit and the, the, the lengths it will go through, go to, to like preserve what it wants to say about the world. So like that map, if you look at it, it's not that it's geographically accurate, at the center of what is like this round disc that represents the known world is Jerusalem. So it's really like the world as told through the story of Christ. So in the way, like at one point in history, the earth was like the center of the universe. But as we learn and understand science, that is no longer true. So the But it is flat. Right. But it is totally flat, just to be clear. <laughs> But this idea that when you when you flatten a design and you start to place things in context to other things, you really convey a narrative. So like the Abbey is this big tower in the center with a big protective ring around it. And outside of that is forest, like the unknown world. So this image 
to me is probably like based on a lot of those persuasive maps of the time. And it's also a bit of like how these, you know, religious locations were set up. So I don't know. It's just, there's just so much like coming through instantly in this first shot of this movie. If you know anything about this type of stuff, which, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's like a little bit of like a flashing of the pedigree of the people who are making this. They're like, hey, there's what, here's what we know and here's where we're going. Right. <laughs> and you're like, oh, okay. And yeah, they're like these old medieval maps too where they're just like fundamentally inaccurate. It's like they're mind maps. Yeah. <laughs> and it's cool to take that sensibility into actual composition design. It's just like a, vis- like a way of thinking and showing what's important. And just the religious themes kind of add a whole nother layer on top of that. Right, because it pushes out everything that's not essential to its culture. And it is literally a mind map. It's like the point of view of the people and also kind of lets us into Brendan's way of thinking because he is our main character and we are like following his journey. So this is the story of the world that he knows. This tower is the center of his universe. Yeah, as we find out, like he's not outside, like allowed to go outside the walls. (laughs) It's like literally true that he has never experienced anything else but this enclosed circle of existence right it's kind of a whiplash with some of the stuff in this movie so like that (laughs) open you know i can i can talk about this like history of map designs like medieval imagery and then suddenly we meet the character and he's basically aladdin like he's just running around chasing a goose for like eight minutes i feel like and now we're in like you know a more kid-friendly cartoon This does, this feels, this section of the movie feels the most like, almost like a pilot pitch for like a kid series Mm -hmm. where it's kind of about like the wacky hijinks of Brendan, the young monk, (laughs) the, you know, and he's chasing this goose because he wants to get the feathers for quills for the calligraphy and the scriptorium. And then all of the other monks who are just kind of bit characters, I don't, they might have names in passing, but I've never um, latched on to any of them. They're kind of a gaggle. They always seem to kind of come together as one group. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they're all kind of like getting in this too, and they're having fun, and they're carrying on. And that gives us like a ripe opportunity for Abbot Kellogg to show up and be like, are you guys having fun right now? Yeah, he's obsessed with plans because his goal is just to get, to get this wall done, right? That's like, that's all he cares about. Yeah, so you can see the outer wall and it's like riddled with scaffolding. I mean, just everywhere scaffolding. People are up there. They're building these walls. There are these really cool kind of design sensibility where you can see the walls unfinished and there's just like big scoops Mm -hmm. taken out of the top of the walls to show these like unfinished, like unbricked up sections of the walls. Uh, That's cool. Yeah, and his whole thing is like... You know, the Northmen are out there. It's really dangerous. We need to get this wall built and like work needs to get done. So we don't have time for shenanigans. No fun allowed, you know, whatever. And I guess he's just kind of the hard ass, the classic hard ass Abbott trope for, you know, that we all (laughs) know and love. Yeah, he's kind of got like dark sunken eyes a little bit. He's like the fatherly figure here. And even says, so through the strength of our walls, It's through the strength of our walls that others will come to trust the strength of our books. So he's definitely like, you know, kind of military and wall building, like safety first, which I don't know. You can't really argue because the town, you know, spoiler, their abbey is destroyed (laughs) later. But I guess (laughs) it was not wrong. Like it, it seems to be some of, you know, sort of the darkness of this is that it's inevitable it's, it seems to be conveyed that this was always going to happen. It was just a matter of coming to terms with it. 
I don't know. Do you feel that? Because um, the character of Brother Aiden seems to believe that they're coming and you're not going to be able to stop them and all we can do is run, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I, and I think this almost is like the easiest thing for me to sink my teeth into so far, flexing my old like analytical skills that we've honed so far. But the character of Abbot Kellogg to me is very much the classic, and I mean it's actually this time and not as a joke, but like the the trope of, you know, the character who is so blinded by preoccupation with these specific material things and goals that he just can't see reality. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, that feels timeless and relatable <laughs> at this point in time. Uh, and that he's so sure that if he just sticks to this plan rigidly with no deviation, that it will work. When in reality, what he probably needed to do was say, you know, we're not going to have this wall finished in time and it's not going to hold up. And, you know, if we get attacked, we need to leave. And it's this blind faith in something with no, you know, reason to believe that it's going to work out. And it, it Brother Aiden shows up and is like, I've seen them. You know, they killed all of the monks at Iona where I, I escaped, you know, in the nick of time. Like, we need to go because they are going to come here and you're not going to be able to keep them out. And so, you know, against this kind of eyewitness account of what's coming for him to rigidly adhere to, you know, stay in the walls, it's for your own good, like da-da-da-da-da. Um, that ends up kind of being his downfall. And interestingly, it really only hurts him in terms of like the major players of the characters, because when they are attacked at the end of the movie, he is critically injured. Right. And Aiden and Brandon make it away. They actually escape unharmed. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of interesting, actually, to see him specifically receive a comeuppance for that error in judgment. Right. He's the only character who... He's, he's a little redeemed at the end too, right? He is regretful. And we do learn a little bit about him that he's got a history as a, a scribe or an illuminator. I don't remember which one. I think an illuminator, they call him. But he does have that backstory. And eventually he excelled to no longer be a brother. Now he's the abbot. And, you know, I guess maybe it's kind of the burden of responsibility we're seeing with him. Like he does have to make a hard choice of, we're going to set up shop here and we have to commit to that. Otherwise, you know, what are we like? Are we just a roaming band of people? Um, so you kind of like see his trouble, you know, you, you, I mean, it's nice to be able to work on books all day as like a comic artist myself. But if I ever had to make a choice about like, okay, I'm going to protect this group of people. I'm like, I don't know how good I would be at that either. Yeah, it is. That's a totally different mindset. I don't know. And that, it's really interesting that you're saying all of this, and it didn't occur to me before, and I never thought of him as having a history as an illuminator. They say it briefly. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Like, I just never retained that. I guess I always see him as kind of who he is when you see him in the movie. Uh, but a little bit later into the movie, still kind of towards the beginning, he is talking to Brendan in the privacy of his kind of chambers at the top of the tower. And it's really interesting because that room is covered wall to wall in drawings mm -hmm. and a lot of them look like architectural drawings and engineering and plans for the wall and stuff like that uh but he also has like a whole map drawn on the floor mm -hmm. that is you know the circle of the abbey with the tower in the center and all of this and so you get a little look into his mindset like not only from you know that 
he has spent all of this time drawing. So he's using those skills that he had, but he's using them for this specific application now. But it's also so lonely and isolated up here. Like his failing is just being in his own head only and just just rattling around in there just by himself, so fixated on these things. It's like a very austere room. It's like dark and it's blue and just like grim and it's kind of sad. And there's one tiny window of light coming in. Like... You know, the window is as narrow as it could possibly be and still exist. And it, all of it is just kind of like this dude's narrow focus and like self-isolation is not good. Yeah. Yeah. He's a bit too much of an engineer and he, he needs to like embrace his, I don't know, his creative whimsy a little more, but he just can't. There's no time in the day. Yeah, he needs to go outside. Like he needs to go outside and like be in the forest and be in the woods and be amongst the people. So all of, all of this, the Abbott's, you know, whole hang up here, it's all being projected onto poor little Brendan, who's just a, he's a 12 year old boy. He's just soaking up everything around him. And, you know, what he's taking in is that the world outside the wall is scary. Inside is the best thing, you know, you could do. And he even, but at the same time, he's also getting a little bit of, you know, the call of the wild. There's a point where he's I think he's up on the scaffolding when he's chasing the goose because they're trying to get the feathers to, you know, do their writing with. And he looks out through a small opening and he hears a voice out in the woods, which is something you see in these type of stories a lot. That kind of like the, the spirit of the woods, like calling to a character to to reconnect because this is going to be the thing that saves you in the end is your connection with this natural world. Yeah. So all through this the the gaggle of scribes <laughs> they're they're all yearning for a master right they don't they can do the work but they don't have that master illuminator and that's who brother aiden swings into just so just in the nick of time to save the day right he shows up from iona a refugee basically from that island which even historically, this is a real place. This is where they say the Book of Kells truly was begun. And then the people escaped with the manuscript pages and then it ended up in the Abbey. And, you know, there's like hazy history as to like what was written where. But it, this is like true history. This isn't like a made up place, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So Brother Aiden arrives and uh, they're kind of talking about him beforehand, which is cool because they're really setting you up for like how cool books are basically. They're like saying, oh, to look upon his work is to like gaze upon heaven. It's all like religious, you know, they they believe in that book. <laughs> yeah, I want to say too, this is um, probably, I guess the first part in this movie that has that sort of like experimental pivot into a new aesthetic. And they do this, you know, throughout a few times. And uh, this one, this is a convention that I feel like Cartoon Saloon uses a lot, but to denote that what is happening is a flashback or an alternate perspective. They have this frame yeah. around the image that is drawn kind of in this vague style of the movie with like iconography that you see throughout. And uh, But I love this whole thing. It's like this little story within a story where the monks are talking about... Uh, like Column Kill and, you know, the Book of Iona and Aiden, all this stuff. And so, like, Column Kill is not a character that shows up in the movie, but he is um, the, like the, not the true progenitor of this artifact, but he had this artifact. He was famed to have this eye, this crystal eye, or, you know, his third eye that apparently made him so amazing at 
being an illuminator. He had this like magic quality that just made him so, you know, perfect at this. And they even, one of them is like, no, he had a third arm, like a third hand. And they're like, no, that's <laughs> dumb. Like it was a third eye, you rube. <laughs> and, um, you know, they talk about Brother Aiden and how great he is. And they say, you know, his writing glows off the page. And if um, if sinners, like, look upon it, they're blinded. And they have this little animation of, like, a little demon or something, like, looking at the book. Like, it actually gets kind of comically cartoonish here at parts mm-hmm. where the demon, like, flies off screen. And then there's little, like, automatopoeia, like, bang, like, text comes up, but in kind of, like, a vaguely gothic style. <laughs> and it's just... I. It's really cool to see that the aesthetic is totally different here. It's I think it it's it's doing a lot of exposition and it's doing I think that's probably a bit of why they lighten the mood so much because they're really teaching you a lot. Again, I like to think about these things from like the view the viewpoint of like a a, a kid watching this for the first time and to talk about this idea of like enhanced perception of like the the concept of the third eye is quite advanced and they just have to do it in this really charming way. Otherwise it's going to be too, too confusing, (laughs) you know? Well, and it just reminds me again of when we were talking about Watership Down and how it's kind of a mythic sort of a story, but then it has all these little moments of myth in it. And uh, in the animated movie too, they do kind of a similar thing where the animate that, you know, when the rabbits are telling these myth stories, Mm -hmm. they pivot to this really simple kind of art style and it's different and then they're just like telling you this story and I feel like this is the same thing the same kind of basic concept where it's like this is a movie that's like loves mythology yeah is sending it up in a lot of ways and we're also telling myths inside the story and we're using that kind of it feels like a classic language you know it's the language of you know kids books and illustrated stories and all of that kind of thing and it even gets scary because then it's like and then here are the northmen and like they're scary and it gets really graphic and not like graphic as in violent but like design wise like red and black and like fire and all of this you know and it just feels it's like they're they're telling you the mood of you know this story that the characters are are saying and it Mm -hmm. it really evokes that somebody telling you a story about something happening in the world and using these like simplified art styles to convey the essence of that yeah they're like almost like glyphs right they feel like they could be on a cave wall or something they're just the most simple simplified archetype or of like a type of evil and they also kind of seem to be from brendan's point of view a little bit because we see the symbol of uh the crom eye as it's the the kind of like pentagram ish looking star like starburst shape that that seems to be like flashing through his vision. Like it's the first, it might be the very first shot we see in the movie is that shape. Yeah. And for some reason, this is in Brendan's mind already because it, it seems to keep like flashing before his eyes. And then when he encounters it, he's like, Oh, this was my destiny all along. But in this little flashback where we see Iona, it's on the sun. Yeah. And it's in like when it turns into the crescent moon, it's still there. And then he he sees the uh, the Northmen's the headpieces on their boats as actual dragons instead of just carvings. So it's just sort of like the the naivety of youth is kind of being portrayed in some of this as well. 
And this is something I want to note here now because it's the first instance of it. And I think it's interesting and I, I'm almost a little confused by it. But the Northmen as characters are portrayed as very dehumanized. Yeah. Like they're basically just monsters. And it's almost uncomfortable in a way because you know that those are real people. But I, I understand using that as kind of a shorthand uh, because they're perpetuating horrors to the, the native you know, that they're invading these lands, and, like killing the people. So, you know, obviously you, if you are a monk in Iona and you gets burned down, you're probably going to feel that way about them. Yeah. But the first time you see them is in this flashback and they're literally like very scratchy and rough. They're just outlines with, you know, horned helmets uh, and they're just kind of dark demonic shapes. But they never really become more than that. You see them later and they they don't talk. They sort of growl like beasts or something like that. You know, sometimes they'll say gold. You know, they're looking, they're like gold zombies or something. It's just an interesting way to show them. And they're the closest thing to an antagonist in this movie. Yeah, and you know why I think they have to do that? Because if this is set in a real, if this is reflecting on a real piece of Irish history, that then implies that the enemies in this are in turn real people, which is simply just another culture from another place and to give them the identity of another people is a little risky. You know what I mean? Like if the, if they were to like turn Norse mythology into like the evil counterpart of their mythology, then what happens when you show this movie in that part of the world? Like, what does it say? You know, not that what the characters aren't doing is bad, like it's wrong, but I wonder if it's some of that. You just have to cartoonify these villains enough where they're not actually representative of anything. Otherwise, it gets like problematic, right? Right. But that's like, I'm wondering, and that's, I don't have any definitive anything to draw on for this either, but I'm wondering, you know, if you are from like one of those countries, like a Viking country or whatever, are you watching this and being offended because you're like, we're not like, you know, terrorists who like, but maybe, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. I just, it's interesting. It's not something either that I, you see a lot, I feel like with evil human, just like villain characters, like usually at least, you know, the Disney school of thought or whatever is there you know, the same, but they're just eviler. They're a little more like smarmy or sneery or just like or mustache twirlingly evil, but like you see their eyes and their face and their mouths. And even in this, you don't see any of that. It's they're like the monsters from the village or whatever. Right. Like kinda, they're just like these hulking kind of spooky shapes with like flashing eyes. It's just an interesting. It's either you do that or you create a specific character to embody evil, right? You can't just right. have a whole like culture be evil. Yeah, because I'm thinking kind of of and uh, this Mulan they named as kind of one of their visual inspiration. Or I don't know if it was visual inspiration, but an inspiration to the filmmakers when they came up with this idea for Secret of Kells. And the bad guy, what is his name? I'm going to Google it. I can't believe I'm forgetting what his name is. Um, bad guy, Sean Yu. So Sean Yu is like, you know, the evil dude in that. And it's exactly what you say, mm. where he's just kind of this like otherworldly almost guy. He's got like pointy teeth and like sharp nails and all this stuff. And he feels very heightened, I think, probably with the same goal where they're like, we don't want to, you know, anybody to feel like we're, 
you know, slandering a specific people or whatever. It's this character with these traits and like he's the bad guy, you know, whether or not they succeeded, whatever. That's like a whole other conversation. But that's more, I think, what I would be expecting from this and not getting is that sort of villain treatment. Yeah, but it again, I guess this is just one of those things where it's just a, a different style of storytelling, right? It's like, oh, we expect the, the, the strong, interesting villain, but this movie just uh, doesn't give you that. And I don't know, maybe it's a little weaker for that because we can't just, but, you know, I don't know, maybe It's not. hard to say. Maybe it's a mythology thing, too, where it's, you know, the bad guy is like a faceless kind of a dragon or something like that. And that's the evil that you have to, that you're contending with. And maybe also, I do wonder if it's more of a force of nature thing because you were you were mentioning, you know, the the inev- the seeming inevitability of this, and that what you really need to do is leave. Like the hurricane is coming, and what we need to do is leave because we don't have enough time to fortify, like batten down all the hatches and whatever. Mm-hmm. And like maybe it's because of that. So it's it's kind of dehumanizing them, as it were, to to be more like this is just sort of a force in the world. And it's not, you know, we're not saying like, this is this man and he was like a bad guy and he was in charge of the Northmen or whatever. <laughs> right. So from that angle, it does kind of make sense to me with how the rest of the story plays out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've established, uh, you know, the, the stakes and this kind of impending doom here. And we've got this wall under construction. So so Brother Aiden, <laughs> so Brother Aiden finally arrives. Everybody's happy to see him because... This is the guy who's going to create, you know, Ireland's finest national treasure, the Book of Kells. They don't know what it's called yet. Right now, he's still carrying what is called the Book of Iona, right? His original manuscript, which is kind of like the lesser, you know, it's like the demo tape. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, here's all of his, like, his notebooks. Yeah. He needs to sit down and bang out the real thing. But we know he's cool. He's very charming. Like you said, he's kind of the the whimsical old man who's always uh, got a joke for you or like a knock on the head with a cane. And he has a very cute cat named Pangerbon. So fun fact about Pangerbon, the the phrase, it's it's a, a poem from, I guess, like ninth century Ireland. So like early Irish culture, same time period this is set in. And it was written by a monk. And the text is actually about a pet cat. So I guess a phrase from the poem says that Panger bears me no ill will. He too piles his simple skill. Not sure what that means exactly. I guess it's like a cat. Oh, let me crack this open for you. Let me get into this. Oh, you got more? Nice. For you. So, yeah, I just want to dwell on this for a second because I love that Pangerbon was a real cat. Like, that was the name of some monk's cat. This is just one of those things where I'm like, history is so uh, delightful. And, you know, it's also terrible sometimes. But... To just be like people, you know, we've always been out there kind of doing the same things and feeling the same things. And, you know, in the ninth century, there was an Irish monk who loved his cat, Pangerbon. <laughs> yeah. And he wrote this poem. And I'm going to read the first stanza. This is translated by Robin Flower from the original Irish. This is the English. I and Pangerbon, my cat, tis a like task. We are at hunting mice is his delight. Hunting words I sit all night. And the whole thing goes on from there. Just being like, I love to write. My cat loves to hunt. And uh, we don't get in each other's way. And it's like really chill. And that's it's just like perfect harmony. Oh, it just put, it just ascends me right to the next plane. Like, what a delightful kind of situation. And I just love these little glimpses into history where 
you can see somebody who is totally alien to you because, you know, like different culture, different time, different reality, all of this stuff. And just be like, oh, but we are all one. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? And like, that's what Pangrabon is to me. And um, this poem doesn't really come to bear in any way in the movie. But I just love that I was just researching this movie and I like got to go down this whole little poem rabbit hole about this. And it's such a nice little nod. Another thing that I just think is unique about cartoon saloon movies is stuff like that. You know, you go watch this movie. Yeah. And it's not like... It, to use Lion King as an example again, if I go home and I Google Simba, I'm going to get Lion King stuff, you know? And if I go home after I've seen a cartoon saloon movie and I'm like, oh, I like really like to know more about this and I dig into it, there's a ton of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Every time, a lot of it is like, hey, this is real stuff. This is real history. Like this was a real mythological story and that rules and I like it a lot. I was looking at a couple reviews of it on Amazon and there were like a couple teachers just stating that, oh, we watch this every year in our class on St. Patrick's Day. And it, it definitely opens all these little doors and windows and whatever to conversation about history and these figures from history in probably the best kind of way because you can pin it to this piece of entertainment. It's not like we're just opening a textbook and here's a poem I'm going to make you read. It's like, oh, here's a cute little cat from a story you love. But did you know that this cat is actually inspired by this? And suddenly you're just kind of like engaging with it differently. So I don't know. To me, this is kind of like the best way to learn about the world is through like a simple story that just opens a door, right? It's, it's great. I think not to go off too far on a tangent on this, but... It, it is something that has made Cartoon Saloon like continually sort of grow in my heart a little bit as a studio, mm -hmm. because I think, you know, like Princess Mononoke is one of my favorite movies. Yeah. I love that movie. And it's definitely my favorite Miyazaki movie for so many reasons. And obviously, I really connect with, I really connect with the giant wolves. They're so cool. Mm -hmm. And also, I really connect with like the environmental, you know, themes and the message in there. Uh, but... Cartoon Saloon taking it kind of a step further in like the forest in these movies. We'll get it. This is a Wolf Walkers thing, too. I'm sorry. We'll get into it in that, too. But like feeling like this, these stories are taking place in a real for like a real forest that's like our forest or whatever, you know, of the, the world that we live in mm -hmm. makes it hit a lot closer to home. And it's like I'm, I'm personally very passionate about environmental issues anyway, but it's the closest I can think of to a movie where I've seen it and I'm like, fuck, like, I really need to do something. <laughs> like, I really need to do something about this because, like, yeah, w those are forests that are real and they're going away. Obviously, they're cartoon forests, whatever, you know? But, like, it's just like, oh, this is, like, really our space. Like, we need to do shit about it. And it's also the kind of stories that, theoretically, I would like to tell, too, mm -hmm. to incite, <laughs> like, genuine thought about the world we actually live in because I love fantasy stuff and fiction stuff. Like, you and I both, we were just talking about Lord of the Rings, I love that. That's so cool about Lord of the Rings. You can open that up and there's like an infinite world of shit. You can learn about that, the lore and the languages and all of this stuff. But it's not our stuff. Right. And so that is a really awesome way to spend time. And I love it so much, like still to this day. But I'd like to spend more time thinking about now and here and us and our history and all of that stuff. So it's cool to see people using animation directly to do that. Yeah, totally. It's a little, it's it's work in a different way, right? To do all this research and make this all fit together, but also have it tie directly 
to the real world is just, you know, a nice piece of ambition that's like very inspiring. And it's something that yeah. is kind of unique to this studio it, it, working at this level of notoriety, you know, I'm smaller yeah. studios do cool educational work as well, but this one transcends and it enters into like mainstream just consciousness, which is cool. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's powerful for the types of stories they tell that are just not often told. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah. So now this kind of little interesting thing. And again, you know, you you wonder how much of this is tied to reality. Of course, like nobody is alive that was here at this time. But I just thought it's kind of interesting that Brother brother Aiden arrives. Of course, the abbot accepts him in. He's like part of the culture. And he's also a refugee from like a neighboring, you know, their island neighbors. But they put him in a really closed off chamber because they first enter into the main scribe room, which has all kinds of great natural light, as they point out, perfect for doing cool artsy stuff. But then the abbot takes him away quickly and puts him in like a, a much darker room. And they don't, I don't know, they don't really get into exactly why other than later it becomes a stronghold for them to survive the attack. But I just wanted, I was curious if, if there's any like symbolism behind that specific choice. I have to imagine some of it is about kind of sequestering him a little bit. Yeah, because he's kind of a fruit loop a little bit, or I don't know. Well, I mean, I think it's just like the abbot's whole energy is like, you're kind of like, this isn't important work. Like the work you're doing is not as important right? as keeping us safe and building the walls and this rigid, you know, sort of energy. Yeah, just having control, basically, which is a he the abbot kind of rides the line of villainy because when you describe him, he's actually a bit like a villain archetype in the way he approaches everything. The uncompromisingness, the like sense of control, sort of a tall, looming presence. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like wrongheaded, but like unyielding. Yeah. To change. Right. Like if he's not a villain now, in a way, he, he could end up being a villain someday if he like continues down this this path. So of course, brother Aiden is has you know here's where we enter the now we have the the conflict of the opposing viewpoints all in one place, right? We have like the wall builder and then the person who says the the terror is inevitable. All we can do is run. So let's maybe focus our energy on like preserving our stories instead of like simply, you know, keeping ourselves safe in this wall is kind of like the bigger picture as opposed to like the immediate danger. Accurate. Yes. We got all the pieces. Right. So we got the whole setup. And oh, we get this weird little moment that I had noticed on uh, a third watch here where Brendan, Brendan is quite fearful, actually. Like, he's very playful. You know, he's chasing the goose and he'll climb on scaffolding. But he is quite afraid of the outside world. So even though he's really curious about Brother Aiden and the cat is quite cute, we get this little moment where the cat's shadow is projected on the wall and it looks very terrifying and it scares Brendan. And it's a cute little cartoon jump scare. But I also feel like it's kind of playing up this idea that Brendan has yet to encounter the outside world in any significant way. And this cat represents a piece of that, which becomes true further on. So I just was wondering if that's a little like foreshadowing maybe of of who this cat, the role the cat plays in the story later. Yeah, I think so. And even like... Now you see this cat 
um, it's the exact same moment uh, because the Pankerbond scares him because Brandon is reaching to kind of poke and feel around in the book, mm-hmm. you know, which he's also afraid of doing, but is curious. Yeah. And he's like, I want to do this. I don't know if I should, but I really want to see it. And the cat is like, no, <laughs> like, what is your deal? And he's like, I'd really just love to see it. Like, it means a lot to me, please. And the cat, it goes from being like pissed to being like, okay. And I love that because it kind of shows you that the cat is not just, this is just a cat. Like it has agency and it has an agenda. Like it's, it's has a purpose. And uh, then it's like, oh yeah, like, no, you're, you're being kind of kind and respectful. So I will permit you to get into this. Yeah. And this is kind of when he gets a little one-on-one time with brother Aiden, who really seems to have this kid's number. In a lot of ways. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. He's like, you know, telling him about the book, kind of describing why it's important. He describes it as a beacon in the dark days of the Northmen, Mm -hmm. which I find interesting. Uh, And I think it's definitely, he sees, maybe it's a thing where he sees Brandon as like, oh, you know, you remind me of me when I was young. You know, there's nothing to directly imply that, but, you know, maybe it's something like that. And so he's kind of teasing him with this. He's like, look at this. It's really cool. Like, look how neat. And then he shows him a blank page in mm-hmm. the book. And it's like, oh, you know, we're still working on this. And it is kind of like, you want in? <laughs> like, you want in on this project? Like, are you into this? He also needs an apprentice because later he reveals that his eyesight is going. So it could be, you know, he's kind of like setting up. I need to bring someone new into the mix. And this kid is uh, curious at the least, which is like a great trait. Yeah for what he needs to do. Yeah, and he absolutely has that energy of a teacher mm-hmm. where I just feel like he would do, like any inquisitive child, he'd be like, all right, like I'm passionate about this, like you're passionate about this, like let's go. And um, so he talks about, you know, I uh, we need these like little nuggets in the woods to go, they're like oak tree berries. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, well, we need these to make the rich green ink that we use for the illustrations and we need to go get more. So do you want to help? Like, would that be something you want to help me with? And uh, and then he just like zips out the door <laughs> in this really energetic way where he's got this really long straight hair and it like flows behind him and he's just like, woohoo, and like goes across. <laughs> and it's really, it's honestly really unusually cartoonish for this movie, for that, for his actions. Like some of the more, uh, like Ashling is a more fantastical character and she kind of moves in these interesting, unusual ways. But the human characters don't do that as much. <laughs> it's just like this fun sort of like pep that he has. He's just a very appealing character. Yeah, he's got that like secondary motion that you are you don't really actually see in many of these characters, right? That like you have, you know, it's I guess it's just one of those animation concepts, right? You have like, if a character gestures with their arm, there's the gesture, but then there's like the movement of the sleeve that follows and continues to move. He's got a bit more of that than some of these other characters that are a lot more like restrained in their silhouettes, like all the other illuminators don't, they're more like cookie cutter shapes, right? Which is just part of the fact that they have like less defined personalities. But yeah, Brother Aiden is a lot more lively and um, he's fun to watch, which is like important because we have to be in awe of him a little bit like Brendan as well. Yeah. And, and you want to re- like, they want you to feel about him like Brendan would. And I feel like they nail it with that. He's got a lot of personality and he just seems fun and passionate. Yeah, I think this this movie more than 
most things, maybe everything we've talked about so far really does capture and try to convey that uh, childlike wonder of something and learning for the first time in a way that I have like accused other Pixar movies about uh, for not doing in any way. Like this, this one is really about like, it's a movie for kids for sure, which is, which is cool. Because I think a lot of the animations that are popular that we watch really don't take the time to actually talk to kids and like at this sort of level. Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting. It's this has never occurred to me in any other context before, but especially after seeing Wolfwalkers, I wish I could have seen these when I was a kid because I would have loved them and I love them now. But like, I would have been like run. I'm still running around on all fours a lot of the time because I got rats down here to play with, you know, and they can't. They're very small. Um, but I would have been like wolf walking all the freaking time as a kid. I was already pretty much doing that. So it's right up my alley. It's cool to see movies like that where I can see that. Mm-hmm. Where I, like if I had a kid, I'd be like, we're watching this movie. Like <laughs> we're doing it. Uh, yeah, all of the all the cartoon slew movies have that for me. Yeah, the, the, the magical world that we're like entering into and are going to be in for the next uh, four episodes is like, it's very exciting and inviting. Um, so yeah. I would totally uh, want to be in there as a kid. I want to talk really quickly just about another more just noting it than anything, but another sequence that this movie kind of breaks into this alternate uh, visualization style. Mm -hmm. And it's um, Brendan in his room talking to the cat and he is, uh, he's got chalk and a slate and he's visualizing, you know, I really want to help brother Aiden. I want to go out into the forest, but it's dangerous. And um, like my uncle is probably going to yell at me. And what if things go wrong? And it's like a chalk animation where it's like really simple, just like line art. Uh, everything is denoted by these like um, boiling like chalk animation outlines and the character designs are really simple. It's got like a little representation of Brendan and it's got this really childlike quality to kind of represent that Brendan is literally drawing this and thinking about it. And uh, it even has this cool cutaway where he's visualizing like what if, you know, things go wrong and his chalk drawing of himself is walking through this like spooky forest so like all the trees have like craggly faces and stuff and then a big monster jumps out and he throws the slate in real life and it shatters on the ground and it has that chalk drawing of the monster on it yeah and this is another thing where you know they're being experimental like what an interesting way to kind of show his inner turmoil like in his inner thought process here it really brings you exactly into like that childlike mindset with the art style and all of that Mm -hmm. and then also to use that cutaway where he shatters the slate and like bring it back to I don't know real perspective it's just so good I love that I love seeing that and it's keeping it fresh and like you know how many art styles can you cram into this movie oh it's just very refreshing yeah totally and he we were talking about the types of drawings we would do as a kid and this is exactly that sort of thing where it's just a big sort of like basically Mario Brothers platformer of just landscape character Uh, Out of space and time, like there's no sense of like sequence here. It's just like a bunch of things thrown on a page and the camera is panning by it. But when you see what he's actually made, it's just like it's the whole map of his like world building, which is exactly what you do when you're a kid. As we I don't remember what episode we were getting into that in, but uh, it's cool to see that represented on screen. This like the types of art you actually make as a kid. (laughs) And then it Uh, and then. 
Oh, nope. You go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was just going to say further on, when you follow this tract of him drawing and his confidence growing about what he draws about and like being scared of picking up different tools, you know, it all connects. Like, so it's a great little storytelling moment here of his like mindset, but also adds up to being like what helps him um, like grow and mature is like getting better with these tools. So that that's like an extra level of it. That's, that's very cool. And then it's so much. And then so we're moving on from this when he, you know, gets up the gumption and he goes, he goes out into the forest, which I love because now you're finally getting to see that aesthetic of the woods and kind of get out of this um, settlement. Mm-hmm. And like the first shot you see, I just love the way I was totally blown away by this movie when I first saw it. And I feel like it's a little bit overshadowed in a good way, I guess, by their later films as they've continued to push their style Mm. Uh, because they've done just even wilder things with like the composition and everything. But this is still so beautiful to me. You see the tree line and they're all just like these perfect trees that I can't even describe it. You have to see it. I'm sure you have seen it. Uh, but the, like one of these tree zones in this tree line, is kind of open and it just like the whole structure of the forest, it, like the forest looks like a, like a church. It looks like, like a building mm-hmm. in a way, like, and it's just perfectly in contrast with the stone, like the gray walls of the abbey. And I'm just like immediately saw, it's like inviting you in, in this like tree tunnel. It's just like unreal. And we have all this like, you know, beautiful composition of, Brendan kind of exploring in the forest and like the playing of the light and he's like what are these birch trees are birch trees the white trees uh yeah yep there's a bunch of birch going on I love the way that those are illustrated I just like I'm very much feeling this whole section (laughs) yeah totally and the symbolism as you're pointing out is like dead on right because right right before he leaves uh brother Aiden says You'll learn more in the forest from trees and rocks than any other place. You'll see miracles. And then that's, you know, kind of like his pagan agenda here talking. And then he also follows it up kind of under his voice. That's something the abbot knew a long time ago. So when we enter that forest and it kind of echoes the structure of the church, I think it's kind of saying that like, you know, we bring the natural world into like the things we create, even if it's so detached from its source that we've forgotten like what our influence was. And, you know, a lot of the story is like the Abbot reconnecting with the outside world through like the work Brendan does. But it's like brother Aiden is like setting you up for, for that, like right here when you're, you think you're just following this kid on an adventure, but actually what you're learning is like a bit about the Abbot's story as well in the way he shapes, like, you know, he engineers his, his structures. I am checking something really quickly. Does Brother Aiden have blue eyes? Oh, I don't know. He totally does. I'm glad you're saying this because I feel like I'm finally getting getting a little bit more at it, I guess. But Brother Aiden specifically mentioning that and also even roping in the abbot and being like, he used to remember this, you know, and now he's kind of divorced himself from it. Mm Like, I really am seeing, like, Brother Aiden is kind of an explicit invitation to join these two things, this, like, world of Christianity and the world of paganism. Like, and I'm starting to see it more concretely now that I'm thinking about it, because I did wonder, like, why does Pangerbon have 
uh, heterochromia, like the two different colored eyes. So has a green and a blue eye. And Ashling, who is kind of the spirit of the forest character that we are right about to meet in the story, has green eyes, like these bright green eyes. And Aiden has blue eyes. And I feel like Pangerbon is this explicit link between those two worlds. Uh, yeah, okay. Where, like, I guess Brother Aiden is just making it work in this really pleasant way. And, like, realizing that... Uh, for his work to matter like you can't just have one or the other you have to have yeah and it's I, this is just so interesting to me i want to know more about this i want to know more about the history of this and like where it's coming from because linking like the world of like the pagan and like the spirit of the forest and all of this stuff and like putting that into the world of christianity like my conception of christianity and like the way i was raised in american culture and all this stuff it's like that is not cool like what that's not a thing and like wrapping my head around, I honestly find that really appealing <laughs> in a mm -hmm. lot of ways. So I just, I want to know more about this. It's just really, I, I'm like, I can't believe I didn't see that link more clearly before when knowing like the obvious visual uh, similarities between Pangerbon the cat and Ashling as this white wolf. Mm -hmm. I mean, they look so similar. They have the same like curl on their tail and all of this stuff. Um, but that's a pretty overt, you know, bridging of the gap. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's, it's like reminding us that that, that influence is always there and that we should look a little harder into it because it's going to help us find our voice and like tell our stories by like connecting with the natural world. And I guess part of it is the Christian culture of this movie, at least, is like dismissive of it because there's no room for it in inside the walls and like the, the control of the abbey. Right. Like there's there's just no room for like the chaos of the natural world because it doesn't fit their agenda because outside the walls are the villains. Even though there's great beauty, there's still like the evil and it's not worth the risk. So, you know, I guess, I don't know. Still, I don't have, you know, another answer to, but it's like good that it's evoking these questions and maybe... Yeah, like I'm feeling very excited about it, even though I don't have anywhere to go with it right now in this moment. I just think that's... Yeah. It's cool. And so we do, um, Brennan kind of gets his pants scared off of him at this moment because he's meeting Ashling for the first time. And that happens in the form of being confronted by a bunch of very scary, but like really cool wolves. Yeah. I will say these wolves do kind of evoke a Mulan aesthetic to me. There's something about their teeth and they have these like bright red lips and they're very angular and a little like swirly. And that is a little bit Mulani to me. I don't know exactly why. Uh, or like also a little bit Samurai Jack, which I don't know if that was like a creative visual influence on this movie, but it does really make me think of Samurai Jack. Yeah, probably. It's probably a little of that, but also maybe it's it's just these early, these kind of like 8th or ninth century illustration styles because it's also very prominent in Irish illustration too. So if we jump back just a tiny bit, um, brother Aiden shows Brendan the book and he's like, well, you know, I'm doing a great job with this book, but I'm saving this page. And it's called the, the Chi Row page, which if you've seen the book of Kells, it's like the iconic page. It's got these two big kind of Greek letter style symbols and Chi Row are Greek letters for like the they're like the first two letters in the Greek word of Christ. So it's like the most religious of all the religious pages. It's like the most important page in the whole book. And these wolves kind of look like 
that style of typography when they do these big, bold, kind of Irish, Greek-influenced letter types, where you get like pointy serifs that are almost like blade-shaped with like little curls iterating inside of them. So I don't know, there just must have been cultural connects through um, these early eras of history that we just like don't have the reference point for. Because I agree, it also reminds me of Mulan as well, just as much as it does like this Celtic art. It looks dangerous as hell though, I guess that's the point. Yeah, they look scary. And I do like that uh, there's some kind of, Ashling seems to have some kind of control over them because they snap to attention and they do it a few times in the mm-hmm. movie because we do see them again. And um, their aesthetic changes when that happens too. Like their look changes and they kind of lose all of their features and they turn into, that has a very Samurai Jack feel to me too, tonally, I think. Uh, and it's very mysterious and I like it a lot. And uh, then she shows up, like Ashling rolls in and she's this white wolf. Uh, and she has these green eyes, which do look just like one-to-one, like Pangerbon eyes. Uh, and then she comes out and she's like, hey, is this your cat? And get the hell out of here. Right, because she accuses him of like taking food, right? Like he he, he came here to like take from her, like from yeah, her Yeah, she's like, you probably came here to get food for your family, mm-hmm. but you need to get got. And if you don't go, I'll sick the wolves on you. And she's even being kind of playful. <laughs> she like snarls at him like a wolf. And he's like, oh, no, I'm like really sorry. And uh, I actually like this, too, because he apologizes to her and is like, I'm not here to get food. Like, I'm here to get this, da, 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 da. And much like he um, kind of asks Pangerbon, like, please, can I see the book? And then Pangerbon's cool with it. She mm-hmm. sort of responds to this. But he does say, like, I don't have a family and I don't have, you know, like, we're not get- getting food for my family because I don't have one. And she's like, oh, I don't have a family either. And that seems to kind of get her attention more than anything else. Yeah, they connect over both being orphans, right? Which is a good way for, you know, it's like, here's a new character, kids. She's a spirit, but she also doesn't have parents. Isn't that sad? And you can kind of empathize with her right away. Plus, she's cool. I mean, who doesn't want to be a wolf girl in the forest, honestly? Yeah, and she's... <laughs> She's um, like, I, I love the way they empower her to just kind of jump around the frame of the movie. Like she pops in as if she knows there's a camera framing a scene. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like she's in a way outside of the story that's going on. Um, she kind yeah, of she's like, like teleporting all around, even in this scene, like even when the camera doesn't change, she'll like pop up behind a stone yeah. and then she'll like hang down from the the top of the frame like off of what i don't know because it doesn't seem like there's anything there and she does she just has like a a, like a very sprite like like kind of elemental quality right and she there's also this um reoccurring motif and it's mentioned in dialogue as well of like mist uh brother aiden says a little earlier on there is nothing in this life but mist and we will only be alive for a short time. So I don't know when the mist comes up because it it comes up again later. Are we maybe in between worlds a little bit? Like is this? Uh, it's a bit of like a supernatural space we're almost in because we technically yeah. haven't entered into the forest, which we're about to do. We're about to meet her forest right now. We're we don't seem to really be in the forest. Yeah, I feel like he only gets to see it. Because she ex- she kind of explicitly parts the mist for him. Yes, exactly. After she actually makes him promise that he and his cat will never come into the woods again. Yeah. And once he promises, she's like, okay, 
I'll talk to the forest. I'll get you those oak berries or whatever. And she like, bloop, like parts the mist like a curtain kind of. And it does feel, it almost feels kind of video gamey to me at this point. Like in the Zelda games, there's this lost woods area where if you kind of stray off the path and it's all like misty woods. Yeah. And if you don't figure out the puzzle of like the path to go through, you just end up right back where you started. And it feels like that where he's in this sort of liminal space that if he just like took off, like he would just loot back in again or something. Oh, totally. Yeah. Um, until she like releases the, the mist. And I also like too, that he's kind of like, Hey, I, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm here on your terms, you know, I'm like being respectful and that being like an invitation into a world, like with your assurance that you're not here to wreck my stuff and like be shitty. You can you can look at the book or you can come into the woods. Yeah, kind of like, like that. Yeah, totally. Like leave no harm or leave no trace type of thing. He's like, I don't. We have our own food. We don't need to take anything from you except the gall nuts, which she doesn't even want because a gall nut is it's like a little wooden nub on an oak tree. They like smell really bad. I think they like even point that out. But it's not a desirable thing. It's like not a food, even though they call it a nut. It's just like a little wart on an oak tree a little ink juice ball (laughs) so yeah we get now something i noticed again on the next watch of this was this is like the beginning of brendan's awakening of his abilities and one his first ability he needs before he can like illuminate is like a sense of perception of the natural world and all the shapes and forms he's seen start to reoccur in the art he makes and they also you know of course evoke the book of kells not simply because we're set in an irish world but because this is what his art comes to look like yeah all of the spiral shapes are a big part of that because there's a lot of the circles with these like three little spirals or you know however many little spirals contained within it Mm -hmm. and you see spirals everywhere here it's so cool and just like looking on the trunks of these trees in the background like over brendan's shoulder or whatever are these like beautiful little pencil etchings of these spiral shapes yeah, a little like kind of like nature fractal type of stuff. These and they call it out too. Like it's it's said earlier that, you know, the the true forest, it's like this is all a miracle. I think uh Brendan like says it under his breath. He's like, Oh, this is the miracle. So he you know, he's he's still religious. And like the best way for him to understand the natural world is to simply call it like a miracle, probably like evoking God in some way. And he also did you notice that he prays? Right before he meets um, Ashling. No, I didn't. He's like sitting on the stone and he puts his hands together and starts to pray. And then the moment's broken. But it's like, oh, we have a cross in this. And we have a very clear cross and a moment of prayer. So, I mean, the Christianity stuff is there, which is. It just makes me wonder, like, how much is there like cultural presence in Ireland that includes this? Or is there like a big kind of cultural understanding in Ireland that like Christianity is real and like we have a Christian religion, but also we believe in all of this stuff, which I am very into and I would love to find out more about. But that's sort of what I feel like it's getting at is that both of those things can be true. Whereas like maybe our more American sensibility is usually like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons will like send your kid right to hell and like, you know, stuff like that. And I love the idea as somebody who's like not really religious, you know, that those two things can exist. And that maybe, you know, if like Christian 
stuff is like the ultimate truth. Like, why can't any of this have been real or be real Mm -hmm. or whatever? That's just, it's just like a nice idea (laughs) that I'm not used to experiencing. Well, when you tell it like this, right, when it's about... um, the, the relationship of art and storytelling in the natural world, then it, you know, then it does seem like it's worth having in your life. But it's like when, like the American version of, you know, what different countries do with Christianity or different cultures or different times and places, that's like what sucks, right? But I, you would think that like at its core, there should be like this balance, like you should be able to find a balance like this movie seems to be kind of saying, right? That's yeah. the best version of of how we can balance like magic and rationality or whatever so they're they're climbing this tree and it's all flat and celtic and beautiful we get these little windows through the tree as the lights coming down light plays a big role in this movie we see it like coming in through narrow windows like you were pointing out earlier it's it's probably like the the vibrancy of wisdom or something i guess I do feel like it's, I don't know if this, I know stained glass has been called out specifically by the filmmakers as being an influence, but a a lot of the movie doesn't remind me of that until this, where like the greens of the forest are really glowing. Yeah. And that makes me, like, I feel like it's luminous in the way that stained glass is. I feel that most strongly in the forest sequences. Right. And this is such a movie about color. Like one of the journeys in this movie is to find the well, this journey is about finding the thing that makes the brightest of greens, right? And the greens in this are great. And maybe it was last episode, we were talking, you specifically were talking about green in cartoons Mm -hmm. and how it's just not, it's always like a second, well, it's literally a secondary color, but it's used for grass or background or like literal stuff. It's not as emotional. Yeah, very rarely is it like a color tone is built around green, which is weird. Even in live action movies, like in any movie, like green is almost never the dominant color. And if it is, sometimes it's like techie, like matrixy in kind of an unpleasant way. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, okay, here's a great little moment that ties back to last episode. These two kids look really closely at these two little bugs. And in last episode, we were talking about children's stories, and we made two points about looking at something very closely. One was about the creator of Pokemon examining bugs. This is something you brought up. Uh, the the guy who invented Pokemon did so because he was inspired by how much he loved to catch bugs as a kid, and he wa- he loved that like observation and cataloging. And it was specifically like bug catcher, which is probably why there are so many bug catcher trainers in Pokemon specifically. A lot of love to the bug type in those games. Right. So you you told that little story. And then I told my little Eric Carl story, which ends up with him telling the story of the very hungry caterpillar, which again is looking really closely at an insect. And I just, this shot of the two little bugs on these close-up leaves is just really unique in this movie. It's the closest view of something we get. There's the least amount of um, like decorative elements and framing around it. It's just these two little bugs. And I, I think that's maybe that's just going to be something that keeps coming up when we talk about a kid's movie is two kids or one kid looking at a bug or something very closely on the ground. Well, and I feel like that's that's the most direct. That might be like the thesis shot of this whole sequence in the forest because Ashling is like, "Check this out! Isn't this cool? Isn't this awesome?" And it is awesome. And it's like again, like that's the whole point 
of him being out of the walls and just seeing nothing but this gray stone and like the inside of rooms. Like, check this out. It's just naturally here and it's amazing. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's very cool. And then we uh, we got this like butterfly shot, which is its own thing. And then they break through and we actually finally get a look at Ashling's forest and her her woods for the first time. So now we're like seeing it and we get a totally different view of the Abbey itself. So at the beginning, we see it in the context of like almost a the political agenda of a map, like this centered piece of culture in this mysterious woods. But now we see the Abbey is simply just something that's cut into the landscape and it's sort of off to the side at a funny angle. It, it's not any more important than anything else. It's it's sort of just a, a hole far away. And I just like the way they kind of contrast those two visions, those overtop views of the Abbey itself. Yeah, there's a, a little bit further. I'm skipping quickly over a scene that I want to come back to and talk to the like Krom Kruik, like the first hint of him that we get scene. But when Brandon is returning from the forest, you see the Abbey again. And it's just like, the forest is kind of dominant around it and seeing these like giant swaths of wall that like aren't built yet. Yeah. It really just like, it's kind of a significant contrast and it just shows you like the futility sort of of this whole, you know, we're going to keep them out with the wall thing. It makes it look really weak in an interesting way. And maybe that's like this new perspective, like coming back in from, from the forest and how I feel like the forest is very monumental Mm -hmm. in this section. So I just think that's interesting. It like really just looks like you have so much work to go and it's just like quit while you're ahead. I, it's not working. Like the forest is the true fortress or, you know, it's the place, this is the place that will actually keep you safe Yeah, yeah. because it gives you a bigger context of, of being part of the world. Like you can't really isolate yourself in these little ways. It's, it's not, it's just always going to be temporary. Yeah. But to get back to, you know, they got all their little nuts and everything. Uh, but Brandon kind of strays off the beaten path. I guess. And this is where we sort of encounter like one of the few dramatic moments that we've seen so far. Yeah, the place of suffering. And it is creepy. It's ominous. And there's some more of that eye imagery here. Like we're looking up at the sky from like a hole in the ground and then it clouds over and then there's this flash of this, the eye of column kill. Right. And um, this place is scary. And even Ashling is just like, we need to get out of here. And... um, it feels very imposing. Yeah, this is the the part of pagan worship that's like vilified by the Christians. It's we see like these broken sculptures and like pointy rocks and obviously there was like some worship for Krom Crouch, which is like I guess translates to the crooked one or the head of the mound or like the head of the mountain or something. And it's also dismissed as like pagan nonsense by the the true Christian believer. But clearly like other people did worship it and it 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 had a role of power in the, the pagan world. So Brendan's gonna get a, a closer look at that a little later. Yeah, which is very interesting to me too at this point where he's like, it's not real. And I'm like, are you paying attention? Like you're hanging out with like a fairy girl. Like, why are you so dumb? Like <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely <laughs> this real. Might be, this might be so she's like losing her mind and you're like, this isn't real. I'm like, are you what are you talking about? Yeah, you got to have uh, the denial of the 
they, 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 your protagonist always needs to deny something. So I guess that's just what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they do get a little spooked and we have kind of a creepy, you know, cutaway where Ashling looks kind of spooky and like a little skull like and is like, this is Crom. Like, don't let's not. You should go. Yeah. Crom killed her family. <laughs> yeah. And it's that's something that is never expanded on. And like pretty much nothing about Crom Crook is expanded on in this movie, but I I wish it was. Like that's another thing that I'm like, I wanna know more about this. It's very mysterious. Like Ashling is an interesting character. So there are these hints of stuff that I wanna find out more about because of that. Yeah. Uh, but then we're back in the safe zone of the of the Abbey. Yeah, we get back to the Abbey and we also get the first glimpse that the uh, the inevitability of the Northmen, right? We get the guy at the end of the dock and we see the headpieces of the boats coming to shore. So now we're, which is pretty cool. It's good timing because we've kind of like set Brendan up on the, he's climbing the hill of adventure. Like he's on his way to becoming the illuminator. But we also see, are reminded that like, oh, well, death is coming for you as well, which is cool. Pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah. Standard fare. We get a good science scene here as they concoct the ink, which I like. I like this little like yes. alchemy scene. I crave this. I don't know if it's like a formative thing from seeing sort of that similar scene in Great Mouse Detective. Oh, yeah. I don't know if people know about that. He makes this little potion or whatever and that's just always been like emblazoned on the cracks of my brain for some reason but i really like stuff like that i like sequences where people are like making colorful things yeah i get a great callback to the green of the forest too right it's like just it's suddenly we have that color brought into the abbey which is cool yeah like this giant kind of cloud of green it's cool too because in other contexts in animation i feel like this would be seen as like noxious like it's a color that is normally associated with like poison or ectoplasm or what have you and in this it's sort of like i don't know it's like a cloud of forest power which i am pretty into yeah uh, but I like all of this. It's very, for an artist, maybe it's just like tweaking something in your brain where you're like, pots of colored stuff. Like, yes, I'm about that. Yeah, this is the art scene. And it it did remind me about the conversation we were having about Burrow and most of these movies, how they are about the artist's journey. And right at the dead center of this movie, I believe, we get Brother Aiden challenging Brendan to use his imagination and the the fear Brendan has of doing that. I'm like, that is not a coincidence. It's like yeah. a thing made by artists is, is definitely going to have its fulcrum point about like the confidence of imagination. Because <laughs> like, what are any of these projects? But like the aspirations of our imagination and like taking our imagination too seriously and making shit up. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, just having somebody when you hesitate to be like, no, just like, Go ahead. Yeah, do it. You know? And like it doesn't have, yeah, it doesn't even have to be more than that. But it's so great that, that anxiety of the blank page. Mm -hmm. And he does mess up, right? He spills some ink and then Brother Aiden's yeah. like, finish what you start, which is really the only lesson you need is truly that's it. Finish what you start. That's it. Just do it. Get it done. I feel like we're getting a lot more out of this movie than we thought we did. Yeah, this like is our already. favorite movie. I think when our, when we're in the middle of any of these movies, they're definitely always going to be like, our favorite. I love it. <laughs> I'm always just connecting with these in unexpected ways. So, you know, now we, we hit the peak 
the not the peak, but the center point of this movie. And now things just get a little more agitated as everything ramps up, right? Like the Abbot is getting a little more stressed out. Brendan's world's getting a little more magical. The Northmen are getting a little closer minute by minute, which is cool. Cool uh, stakes building, I think. Yeah, awesome. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Yeah, I will say we haven't really mentioned this, but he has premonitions a couple of times about stuff. And that's also not really a, like explained, which is fine. Like, I don't think it needs to be explained. It's just interesting because he dreams that Iona has been attacked right before Brother Aiden shows up. And it's sort of part of that myth animation sequence. And then here he's dreaming about, I think about like Crom Crook and getting the the eye... He sort of has this vision of putting his quill down on the page and it's giant and then the ink starts to kind of like spray out and he's like running down this scary spiky hallway and sort of getting chased by this stuff and then the eye shows up for a second and then he wakes up. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I like the look of this scene and everything, but just in terms of types of stories, I think I'm in general always turned off by a chosen one type of narrative like i just don't so all right we got this cool little boy he's aspiring to be an artist i relate he's meeting friends cool i like that he's got a new cat companion i also have a cat what i don't have is visions of the future and also oh you don't (laughs) oh that sucks for you dog well you gotta sorry (laughs) that's lame well if you if you have (laughs) anything i need to know (laughs) from your visions you know, keep me in the loop. Oh, shit. Oh, I haven't told you? Okay. I'll send you an email. <laughs> Good. All bullet points of things to avoid. But I don't know. You know what I mean? It's like now he's got this magical aspect and it just seems like he's inevitable. Inevitably the hero of this story, whether he fails or not, kind of. I don't know. I'm, I'm just not as, as into that. I don't know why he needs to have a magical insight. It doesn't really seem necessary for what I get what you're saying. And honestly, so this is, I think, where it gets a little muddy for me. And I don't know what a better solution, if there is one, could have been. I can explain that sort of a way by thinking like, you know, maybe he got sort of touched when he was in that in that circle in the forest with the evil, you huh, know, the, yeah, the place of suffering. And maybe it had something to do with that. I also think, like, the one thing that I'm not sure... I understand fully is the the necessity for this object. So this is obviously kind of the in-film explanation for why they need to get the eye. I guess maybe it's supposed to show like sort of Brennan coming into his own. Huh. I don't know. That's why like it's this important artifact that they have to retrieve before they can finish the book. They need it to be able to kind of zoom in and get to all of that fine detail. Something like this. Yeah, uh, I think it's like it's a talisman to make good art, which is great. And I'd love one. <laughs> <laughs> right. It is. It is the magical amulet of this story a little bit. Well, Brother Aiden says, what does he say? Something like, have you ever seen the the green emerald green wing of a bug or something? And uh, yeah, of a green flies wing. Yeah, yeah. So I guess what it's saying is it helps you look a little closer. It's just an enhancing tool. And I guess Brendan needs one more quest uh, for the story to continue because it it is a short movie. I guess you do need something else to just raise the stakes for him and to him for him to encounter the thing he fears most. Here's the other half of that like problem of his ambitions and like his destiny. 
So Brother Aiden says something to the cat earlier. What Brendan needs is to face the thing he fears the most, whatever that is. And it seems to be Crom. But why? Yeah. Other than, I mean, was he born in the woods? Like, were his parents, did they die of exposure? Like, is there a reason he's fearful of the natural world other than the abbot has implanted that in him? I don't know. It's like his story's not rich enough for us to understand his journey. Yeah, I do wonder if there's some kind of, like, actual historical or, like, mythological context that we personally don't know. But I also wonder, and I still don't think, I think it still has some issues like how you're describing, but I wonder if it's like he needs to face danger and like Krom is this embodiment of bad. Yeah. And he won't be able to kind of move forward until he's actually experienced a dangerous situation and come away fine. Uh, It's a little bit foreshadowed maybe by... Brother Aiden saying, you know, when he first introduces to him the idea of going out and collecting these objects to make ink, he acknowledges that the forest is dangerous. But when Brandon goes out into the forest, it's not really. I mean, he does have that sort of encounter with Crom, but like nothing comes of it. But the forest itself is not what's dangerous. It's like that there is a danger right. in it. And so maybe he does. There's a little bit of a teeing up. It's just it sort of goes over your head in a way that I don't. Like, it doesn't feel exactly right to me. I don't know if I can say that it's like a flaw in the movie or not. I feel like I'm missing something. But it certainly does. It stands out to me as like, it's hard for me to understand the motivation or like why exactly it's happening. Yeah, it's like a, yeah, Krom just is this, uh, like an ancient piece of evil leftover in, in the forest. And then that it's just, he's going to encounter it. With the the eye... Maybe what it's also doing is, like you're saying, it's it's probably a direct reference to something about what I think is probably the Book of Kells. So the page, the Chiro page, if you get a good look at it, it is deeply detailed beyond what you could imagine being possible by the na- doing with the naked eye alone. And that's part of the goal. That's what makes it um, a miracle is that it's just so hyper detailed. So maybe at the end of the movie where we're getting this close-up view of this actual page and all the like little elements of it, it's saying, well, this is how that's possible by, you know, finding this magical artifact. It truly is magic that this yeah. page exists at all, which seems to be like a mixed message because I would rather it just be this kid got really good and did it, right? Yeah, I wonder, too, if it's just like a very overt way of saying, like, you can only really get good at this if you look directly through the forest. (laughs) Like, you know, like if you're looking directly through this artifact of the old world. Yeah. It has something to do with that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, like, is that a real artifact? I actually. Or is that something? I didn't dig into that one. I'm not sure. It's cool, though. We are going to, we got more research to do, baby. Yeah, part two. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, I do want to talk about that. I quickly want to, before we get there, because we're close to that scene, mm-hmm. talk about this little like singing moment. And I think I want to call this out. Uh, Brendan is confined to his tower because the abbot is like, hey, I told you not to have any fun or do any cool stuff or go outside. So you are being punished in the dungeon with you. Uh, Ashling comes and she's like, I gotta bust you out of here. And Pangerbon, I think Pangerbon comes to get her. He actually like leaves and goes out and finds her with the wolves and brings her back to save him. And she sings this 
kind of magical song that turns Pangerbon into this little spirit. And I remember being struck by this part the first time I saw this movie because I just hadn't seen something like this before, really. You know, it's not using any kind of like totally alien language or anything, but with the, the music and like the visual styling and Pangerbon just turns into this this really neat little cat spirit uh, that can na- navigate through walls <laughs> and it gets a key and it busts Brendan out of cat jail. And there's some beautiful stuff in here too, like a scene of this cat spirit floating down the stairs and behind it, there's a shadow, but you can see the cat's legs in the shadow, like walking. There's these little like subtle visual things that are really cool and evocative. Yeah. This is my favorite scene on the third watch of it. It, yeah, it's just really beautiful. And I'm going to put, um, I'm going to put the audio in of the little song she sings right here. You must go. Especially about the song, I normally don't really like stuff like this in movies, depending. I feel like they're not done that well. And honestly, I just attempted to watch uh, the Ghibli version of the Earthsea stories, the Tales from Earthsea by Studio mm. Ghibli. And I actually turned it off. I hate that. I couldn't finish it. it. I really was hoping that it would be that people were wrong. I don't know. I really couldn't. <laughs> and there's a part where this girl is singing a song about how she's very sad and lonely. And it's apparently so moving to the male protagonist. And it was ear poison. I I am so sorry to be so negative. Truly. I just wanted to curl up inside myself and like not hear it. And I just, it's so easy. I think for these to go over poorly. Yeah. And I actually don't, I don't feel that way about this. I feel like it's a nice kind of little magical moment in the middle of this story. Yeah, because she's saying, she says, you must go where I cannot. So it's like she awakens the the pagan spirit in the cat and it's, and it's able to like do this thing. And then she returns it to its normal state, I guess. It's kind of, I'm not really sure what it's letting us know about the cat. Like, is the cat able to do this on its own or is it only through... Yeah, I have to imagine it's basically a spell that she's weaving. But maybe it's also something that wouldn't work without. Pangerbon clearly has some kind of connection. Maybe just, I'm a cat, you know, but this connection to the natural world that enables them to work in tandem like this. Uh, But then, you know, Brendan, she busts Brendan out and probably to her regret because he makes a beeline for Crom's hood and she is like, don't do this. (laughs) You're an idiot. Like, you're going to die. Uh, you know, he killed my whole family. Like, please don't do this. Uh, but she ends up helping him get inside, which is kind of scary. And you actually don't really see her again for most of the rest of the movie after this. And it's sort of implied that she's had to sacrifice maybe some of her physical form, possibly temporarily, to get him in here. Because there's some kind of dark magic at the entrance to this cave that is inimical. It's harmful. But Brendan gets in and then we get to be, you know, in this... Another really freaking cool part of this movie to me that, again, like I didn't see coming the first time I saw this. I was really impressed by it. Mm -hmm. Uh, He ends up falling into this void that's all kind of just like teal and dark. Uh, And this is where Krom is. And he's this horrifying like jelly serpent with these really sharp teeth. And yeah, it looks like he has an eye in the center of his forehead. 
and he's got this nasty little tongue and he's chasing him all around this void. Brendan's like swimming. Like it's really hard to know what is going on here. It really feels like he's in some kind of different reality. Yeah. And the way that they play with the space here is so cool. Right. It's kind of two-dimensional because he's able to draw. Like, does he? I don't know if he's carrying chalk or something, but he, he has chalk. Yeah, yeah. He boxes. He has chalk from the. Yeah, he closes in Crom, which forces Crom to start eating their own tail. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. when he, The first thing he does is draw like a straight line, and Crom smashes his head into it. And I'm just like, holy shit. Like, we're getting this like. 2D solutions to a 3D world because you're also sometimes seeing him in these three dimensions, you know, and I love that Krom is represented purely in these angular lines. So he's not like coiling in on himself. Yeah. It's like squares upon squares upon squares of his body. And it's, I just like, my head just, my brain exploded out of my body when I first saw this and I never recovered. Yeah. He's got a totally different energy than the, 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 the natural world like he's more of an idea right because you can trick him by drawing a line and then you can extract this this like crystal from his head but it's and then yeah it's just kind of an interesting abstraction of a a monster and i will say when he starts eating himself it's like kind of visceral in a weird way there's no like blood Uh, This is something that reminded me of when, you know, like a student project and not because of the quality of how it's made or anything like that. But a lot of the student projects that I remember being really affected by that I've seen over the years are like the ones that are kind of disturbing and weird like this. And it's like not really something that you see in a lot of feature films. And he's just like ripping huge chunks out of his body and just eating his own tail. And then he's just like left to the void. And you can see him just like, you know, diminishing. Uh, And there's something about just like the rawness of that, that it just freaks me out in a really good way. Yeah, it's cool. And it just seems like he's stuck in an infinite cycle of that, right? He's just sort of become the the ultimate symbol. And and he'll just go down in history. Yeah, now he's gone i guess i hope i don't know uh brendan pops up and he comes out and uh the whole path is covered in these white flowers that we've come to associate with ashling who is nowhere to be seen yeah and he makes his way home again yep so he impresses brother aiden with his cool new crystal the kid gets a cute little pat on the head and we see him kind of like put these new skills to use through this kind of mix of, we, we kind of got a montage here, right? They're, they're trying to wrap up the wall because the Northmen are about a day away, I think at this point. And also Brandon's kind of leveling up his illuminating skills here. Yeah, we see, this is kind of when we see, you know, there's some, a little bit of passage of time here Brendan, he's using the crystal and he's made this like really beautiful. It's just a circle on a page with like a lot of like beautiful detail and swirling and everything on this like piece of parchment paper. And that's straight up from the Chiro page. Like that's a visual emblem that's that's, like prominent on that page. So I guess that's important. Uh, And Brendan, well, not Brendan, uh, all the monks are like gathered around to marvel at it. Uh, it's really cool to see it, honestly, too. And they're all kind of, they're in that, like the hearth of the scriptorium and like marveling at it when, you know, who should come along, but Abbot Buzzkill. Yeah. <laughs> and he 
is losing it. <laughs> right. Because again, everybody's having a good time and trying to get enlightened and he just wants, he, he's got his plan. They got to get that wall done. Yeah. He's like, art is canceled. It is. Y'all are dicking around in here. No, but he says, you know, true, truly, we have one day for the Vikings, you know, before the Northmen show up. So, and you're drawing and he does this nasty thing, which I think is so effective to have in kids media, honestly, because I, it still bothers me, but he rips the drawing off the thing and he takes it away. And it's like, uh, like, ah, uh, no, I don't know. Maybe that's like an art kid thing. I don't know. But it hurts when people do that. It's the same thing as like when Meredith's mom throws her bow in the fire and brave and you're like, oh, my body, like psychic damage. Like it actually does hurt. Yeah. And also it reminds me uh, in Little Women, like uh, Meg throws out one of Joe's stories, like she throws yes. it in the fire and you're like, <gasps> yeah, it's devastating. And you're like, I'll kill her. Oh, it is. It's painful. Yeah. So, yeah, it feels like that. And on the positive side, though, I will say I absolutely love it when it goes all like red and white and black for the like the fire. The way that they depict the fire of the Northmen is real. It's just literally just like red cell animated flames. But um, there's something in that. Uh, the purity of that, I guess, is like, mm, like I know exactly what's going on here. It's evil. It's great. It looks good. So the visuals here, I do like a lot, but I, I think I'm just not compelled by the Northmen really either. No, they're too abstract to like feel that dangerous, right? And they feel like an inevitability. So I, they, you know, they're spoken about like an inevitability. So all along, you know, they're going to show up, you know, something bad's going to happen. Mm. And so I'm like, yeah, okay. <laughs> the only time that I sort of, I get a little bit more out of them is at the end. And there's this final confrontation yeah. between... Brendan and Aiden mm -hmm. and the Northmen. And that is a little, I respond more to that. And honestly, I'm happy to kind of like skip over some of this sequence at the end, except for to just sum up that, you know, the Northmen have busted through the wall, you know, they've gotten in there. And uh, Abbot Kellogg has also been kind of grievously wounded in the process. So he's still alive, but he's like hit by an arrow and he gets stabbed by a sword. I don't know how he survives this. Um, but this is kind of the, the aforementioned comeuppance that he's experiencing with his hubris of not like getting the F out when he had the opportunity. Right. And, yeah, and Brennan and Aiden have managed to flee. Everyone else is kind of there in the wreckage of the Abbey, except for them. And they use their ink, right? They, they make a little like smoke screen. Yeah, they do like a smoke bomb. They're basically hiding out like Lord of the Rings Hobbit style hiding from the <laughs> ring rays, right. like in the scriptorium as the Vikings are skulking around in there. Mm -hmm. And they yeah, they make ink and in the, the green vapors they manage to flee. So they're in the forest and like Brandon has seen on the way out, he sees that the abbot is injured and I there is even sort of a moment where the abbot, you can tell that he's like Oh, shit. Like, <laughs> I, I messed up. <laughs> yeah. Brandon. And Brandon wants to stay, which is totally not the right answer. He wants to stay to help him. And Aiden is like, nope, you can't do that. Like, you're going to die. We're going to go. They leave. Uh, and this is where they get attacked by Northmen. And this, I, this, it kind of works for me. There's just like a little sequence where uh, 
the I maybe he's like the king of the Northmen. I don't know. He's ostensibly the leader of the Northmen. He has this gold badge on his chest, and he gets the book. Mm-hmm. And his whole thing is like all they want is gold. We know that. And the book is has this beautiful like golden bejeweled cover. And he's looking at it, and he's flipping through the pages. And maybe you're kind of wondering, you know, is he going to respond to this or whatever? And he rips out all the pages and right. takes the cover and leaves. Or I guess he, uh, I don't know if he makes it all the way because wolves come to save them at the 11th hour. So I don't know exactly. You don't really see what happens here. They definitely don't get the cover back. And this is also when we get another, like a far, like a parting glimpse at Ashling, Right. In her wolf form. Yeah, she's still like in control of the forest and being a little biased towards the character she, she likes. Because Brendan you know, chases the one remaining page of the book as the wind picks it up and into a little clearing. And then he meets the beautiful white wolf who touches it with her cute little nose. It's very cute. Yeah, and then you have to wonder. So this is, like, I guess a lot of it had sailed over my head before, but this is the point where you really feel like she's going out of her way to make sure that the book is okay. Like, it almost makes me wonder if it's less about the characters, although obviously there's an affinity there. And so then that has always sort of stood out to me. I'm like, why is this like fairy of the woods invested in this book and kind of getting that going? Yeah, that's part of, yeah, I think that's what I was trying to get at right off the the top before we really got into the story is it, it is just the journey of the book. It's not really about the characters. The characters are kind of guiding it along, but we're, we're a little too focused on the book. It would be like if Lord of the Rings was really about the ring and not about the characters growing and responding to like the ring's persuasion. Like this is just the, the book of Kells is going to happen. And here's some of the figures that were there along the way. And for some reason, even the natural world wants the book to exist. So it's, it makes it not about her friendship with Aiden as much, even though like it's clearly that, but you'd rather it be a little more focused on how they were kids that were orphans and friends, right? Yeah, like it is a little bit, the fact that they don't really see each other again, really, Mm -hmm. is kind of, it's not a bummer. I don't know. It's just like, I wanted more, I guess. Yeah, a little closure would have um, just sort of And I just liked her. Yeah. I liked that character. So now we get some more just like showing off that we're into art is Brendan and Brother Aiden travel off to a distant land so they can build a little uh, stone hut, but they walk through a, a triptych, <laughs> of course. I love that, honestly. Yeah, it's cool. It's a good way to pass the seasons, right? Yeah, it shows, you know, that they're like traveling far away. And that it's taking time. Mm-hmm. I guess this is basically we're in a montage that takes us through the rest of the movie till the end. Right. And yeah, I like really like that shot. It's another thing that they use these three ups throughout the movie at times. And it's something they use in other movies as well to kind of show action happening sequentially or sometimes action happening to different characters simultaneously to have these like three things. It's almost like a comic. Yeah. That they do this. And I like to see the different iterations, like the framing that they have over this is kind of nice and it's really beautiful watercolor backgrounds. Uh, but yeah, essentially they end up in this little hut together uh, with Pankerbon being all cute. And uh, there's a scene, like a little shot of them clearly working on the book together. And Aiden is looking a lot older. Yeah. And Brandon is like a young adult at this point. Yep. And then they, they seem to be completing 
their work here and they're they're sharing it with some of the local wood folk. And we get we get like a a little parting with Brother Aiden. And he this is maybe this is uh it's almost like a a, a Norse myth reference in a way cuz he's at the shores in the way it's like the shores of Valhalla or something like the kind of edge of the map that's just the ocean that goes off into infinity like where the elves go in Lord of the Rings which is interesting that he leaves him there cuz to me that's not like an Irish thing that's more like the viking thing and those are the bad guys but i'm sure there's like an irish myth that connects it but to me it's not like the prominent version of like the shores of infinity is is where we part ways but um so but it is a sweet little ending for uh their friendship yeah it's kind of sad i like this little shot where there are just the footprints in the sand and it's like obviously brendan and aiden and then also the cat's footprints and then the like the the water comes in and wipes away one set of the footprints. And it's like, yeah, Aiden has died, presumably. And then back at the uh, the Abbey, which is just the tower that's left, which is how it remains today, just this isolated tower. It's raining and awful. And we, we see the abbot and he's in his final days. He's like warding off death, right? He's like, you can't take me yet. Like my job's not done. Yeah, he's clearly a tortured soul also. I mean, he's aged, obviously, and he looks miserable. He's the picture of depression, which is totally understand understandable. And in like all fantasy stories, even though we're talking about this big, giant world, it all comes down to tiny coincidences. So right as the abbot's struggling in these final moments, his lost nephew, Brendan, returns as the sun comes up, right? <laughs> it's like... The perfect closing of this little poem. Yeah, we have a nice little animation too of when Pangerbon is there. And then the like little assistant monk or whatever that's like tending the abbot is like they kind of like Pangerbon's like being all cuddly with them and stuff. It's just a cute little piece of animation. Um, yeah, they seem to have some secret connection where, <laughs> where that's a story for a, that we weren't told. Yeah, like everybody loves <laughs> Pangerbon. Just the abbot was not cool with Pangerbon, I guess. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Brandon here is like, an actual young adult, he's able to bring the good news. Yeah, so he's got the book. And right as he was leaving, brother Aiden told him that, the, you know, the book wasn't meant to be hidden away behind walls. Brendan, you must bring the book to the people to light the days, which I guess is recalling, you know, the, the quote at the very beginning of the movie to some degree. And the abbot seems to have held on to Brendan's first little illuminated image all these years. So that's sweet. It's like the one thing that brought him hope through all of this. Yeah, that's kind of like, ooh, oof. Like, I don't know. He's clearly just been so tortured by all of this. And I will say it does, it hurts a little bit to think about what it must have been like back in those times, because for all he knew for all this time, Brendan didn't survive. Right. And I think he was thinking that, you know, he didn't make it out and he's been dead this whole time. And honestly, on the flip side, Brennan's taking this all really well because I would have assumed that he, that the abbot had died because of his mortal injuries that he'd sustained previously. So it is nice to have them kind of have this end cap. But as you say, I think we're both sort of feeling like an overall emotional detachment from the journey of the characters. Yeah. Because again, it's about the book because he he hands him the book and the abbot's 
so excited to see it for, you know, whatever reason. It doesn't really, it again, it, it's still just a book. Like it doesn't really solve whatever problems he had. And maybe it's awakening something in his repressed memories of being like a young illuminator. Cause like we said earlier, there seems to be like a, a past for him that's gone unacknowledged since he was promoted to Abbott. And then we get like a flash through of the actual Chiro page from the book and all these little details like come into life. And I guess it's, this is where I think if you're Irish and you're familiar with this, it's, it's probably evoking more out of you because like you might've seen this page in real life. And now we're sort of like getting the backstory to what it took to create something like this, which seems to be like kind of the intent of the movie is what's the story behind the art we love or the pieces of culture, you know? And I do wonder, it's very hard for me to say, but I do wonder if, you know, if you are very religious, if this would mean more to you. Or just very Irish, right? It, but I mean specifically religious, though, because it's, yeah, I mean, it's literally, you know, an icon of Catholic, you know, of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't necessarily, you know, see something like that and feel personally moved. But if that's something that you believe, you know, is something that was ordained by God, essentially, I'm sure you would have an emotional response to that. Uh- Especially because it's real. Like, that's a real artifact that exists in the world. So if that's like a confirmation of your faith, I have to imagine you would be moved by that. Yeah, I guess you're right. It kind of has to be that. Because otherwise, the the f- fictionalized version of this would probably have this page recall Brendan's adventures from the movie itself. And not just these whole new series of images. Because the stuff we see doesn't really have much to do with the story we were just told other than it's in the style of like the world he was in, you know? And that's, I mean, you're right. Like it's about the book and it's not about them. Like this is about the story. Although this is not, I think historically an accurate story of how, you know, I think this is just an idea of how this book came into being. Uh, Because I believe they're not even sure if it actually was made in Ireland. Um, It could have been in Scotland. Right. Because the island of Iona was like right on the, the boundaries of Scotland. So probably, yeah, at the time, things were a little more like gray area, right? So it's it's not clear exactly where these things originated. Yeah, like historically, they probably don't know exactly where it came from. But it being, it's the same thing as Prince of Egypt to me. Like it's a good story at the same time. But like if you really believe that this stuff is real, that's going to mean something to you. And more just, you know, kind of in conclusion, whether that stuff seems to mean anything to us, I think like throughout the journey of really digging into this movie, it did really like open up all these like little questions and points of perspective on this piece of culture from this place, which I think is like, uh, you know, a pretty respectable and <laughs> respectable is a great way to compliment an, an animation studio. Very respectable work. <laughs> cartoon saloon <laughs> but I, I just think it's really cool how talking about this movie we've just opened all these little doors to understanding of you know like a kind of this this piece of art and culture that we really didn't have any connection with otherwise other than like fleeting glances for me of you know looking up cool historical books and that's like do as somebody who does like stuff like this and is like a huge nerd uh, 
it is the kind of thing that I want to see. Like, I'd love to see more. I like, I love my fantastical dragon stories, whatever, too. Also, obviously, I love all that stuff. But yeah, I like, you know, learning about the world and learning about things that people did. I mean, you saw how excited I was when I went through the Pangerbond poem and how that was like a real poem about some guy's real cat. Mm-hmm. You know, that stuff is awesome. Like, let alone these like... And it's kind of wild that illuminated manuscripts even ever existed with how much labor goes into them. God, I mean, if we want to get really meta, it's the same thing as like animated movies. <laughs> like the fact that they exist is kind of miraculous. I was just about to go there. So you might as well keep going. <laughs> but, you know, I like history. History is a place that I like to kind of escape to sometimes when I'm feeling stressed out about the modern time. Uh, so... Things like this are cool to me, and it's also something like, yeah, you can tell these stories with animation, so let's do it. That's all for now. Join us next week as we continue our cartoon Salunathon series and plunge into the lush watercolor oceans of Song of the Sea. Check out our episode archive and other facts about us at cartoonfeelings.com. Tweet at us or join us on Instagram. Both are at Feeling Cartoons. Share your thoughts and questions by writing cartoonfeelingspodcast at gmail.com. We would really love to hear from you. And, you know, if you have something cool to say, well, share it on the air. And if you're enjoying the podcast an extra amount, we'd be so grateful if you'd consider rating us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review, some kind words. And most importantly, tell your other cartoon friends about us. That's all for now, folks. See you next time.